What's up everybody, this is Elliot Terrell and you're listening to Magical Thinking, brought to you by artofmagic.com. Our guest for this episode is Tom Frank. If you're in LA, you probably know Tom because you've seen him at the castle. That's one of his regular haunts. And he was kind enough to have me over to his house to have a couple of beverages, smoke a couple of cigars, and talk about life and magic. In this episode, we talk about busking a lot. Uh, Tom is a wonderful busker. He traveled the world with his street magic show. And we get into some fun stories, including one about my hometown. We talk about his friends that he's met along the way. And of course, we talk about magic and theory. And Tom has an interesting take on getting older as a magician, as a working professional, that I think will be enlightening for a lot of the listeners that are trying to make a living doing magic. Tom is on a crusade to have every magician pass the deck, and we talk a lot about sessioning. So I think it's really going to be interesting to hear you guys' feedback, which you can give to me at podcast at artofmagic.com. If you haven't already, follow us on all the social media channels, facebook.com slash magicalthinkingpodcast and slash a sense of mystery. Give us a like so you can stay up to date on what we're doing. Of course, follow us on Instagram as well, at treasuryofwonder and at magicalthinkingpodcast. Join our newsletter so you can see all the cool things that are coming out in the future. And next week is Thanksgiving, so I just want to let you all know that I'm very thankful for you. And I'm grateful that you guys are enjoying the show. Get into Tom's episode. It was wonderful. I had a great time. He's such a lovely, interesting man. And if you get a chance to meet him, sit down and talk to him because he's a fascinating guy. Don't forget to let me know what you think. Enjoy. I hope that we haven't uh, haven't uh, put you into a into a bad scene. Invite you over here. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. No, it's going to be great. Um, but you, Tony, worked for you in Seattle. That's what you were saying. Yeah. Well, I was sort of just going to say that that uh, I felt very lucky about having had the opportunity to see Tony and Homer both in their formative years. And that they both have very similar characteristics in terms of the apparent ease of which they learn. Really? You know, I watched Homer uh, go through the complete works of Derek Dingle in a night and was able to pretty much do everything in the book the next day, which that's not normal. <laughs> and then I watched Tony years later learn uh, rollover aces in about 20 minutes. And that's a trick that I struggled with, and you know, it took me a long time just to make sense out of it, and, yeah. uh, and to uh, so you know, just uh, those sort of guys. You know, they're, they're, I feel very lucky and fortunate to have uh, been there for their formative, formative growing years. Well, so how did all of that come about? Because I know you had the shop in Seattle for a little bit, but Homer mentioned knowing you in Cincinnati, and I mean, what was how does where did it all start and what's kind of the trajectory of it? Well, perhaps maybe we'll... Uh, I, I've known Homer probably since he was a teenager, but I ended up dropping out of high school in 1983 and moving to New York City to be a street performer and ended up staying there a season and then going down to Atlanta for a while and then down to New Orleans and then to Boston and then back to Cincinnati for a while in 1985 hung out with Homer some then and I guess I was probably 19 and he must have been a few years younger than me 
and then moved out to LA for the first time in 86 and 87 where Sylvester the Jester was my roommate and then in, in 87 moved back to back to Cincinnati and that's where Homer and I really started getting tight with some other key players in our posse like uh, Chris Korn and mm-hmm. Brett Wolf and some other uh, guys that were part of a you know we used to just jam I think I, I'd moved back into my mom's attic in, uh, in Cincinnati and we had epic jam sessions in there and I think in Homer's podcast he mentioned about all the video footage that we shot there so it was just great to really sort of capture those formative years and to see you know Homer was was you know he it was funny I think I started teaching him some magic and with about and within nine months he sort of eclipsed me so yeah just watch watching Homer's uh, trajectory of just uh, and I think this is when he was going to uh, the uh, design school industrial design school at University of Cincinnati the DAAP and uh, that was when I remember him saying you know he wasn't even out of college and he said I'd like to design uh, Copperfields for illusion, or design illusions for David Copperfield, and it wasn't but a few years later that he was actually doing that. So, very, very exciting time. And Chris Kenner was, you know, I, I think I was working up at Illusions for the first year that they were open. I had sort of an interesting slot where they didn't have a lot of guys that were comfortable doing the lounge shows, so I wasn't one of the table hopping guys. I was strictly doing the uh, the lounge shows, sort of comedy club style shows, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in the lounge. And uh, Mike Close was up there, and, and, and uh, Kenner was there. And, uh, Homer, I don't think Homer was up there just yet, or when I was there uh, the, during the first year. But uh, it sure was a very special time to be in the Midwest. We had just a hotbed of, uh, of magic and talent in, in Cincinnati and in the Midwest in general. And the Magi Fest was going strong, and, and uh, uh, Haynes House of Cards was also sort of a, a hub where I grew up. I, started working at Haynes House of Cards as a 12-year-old and making trick decks and pitching decks there and, and uh, so well how'd you get started what was the how, what when did you get bit by by the bug you know probably I like the way Chester Roman said it it sounds cliche but I got a magic set when I was about seven or eight and yeah. then you know just kept up with that and uh probably you know 9 10 11 i was living in europe at the time with my folks spent six years in europe as a kid two years in germany and four years in paris coming back when i was i guess coming back in time for sixth grade yeah but uh while i was in paris i was it's great we lived near the champs Elysees, and there was a newsstand that had a magic magazine and so I was reading this, uh, I think it was put out by Tannins at the time. Okay. Tannins Magic. I don't remember what the name of the magazine was, but I used to order these magic tricks from Haynes House of Cards in Norwood, Ohio, and I never thought that a couple of years later that I'd be working at this place that I was buying shit tricks like the <laughs> plastic load-up jug. <laughs> uh, and so by the time we moved back and I was 10... My parents got divorced, and I think our family was in a tailspin and was looking for some community and looking for some support, and uh, found it at the magic shop. And well, that's that's how it goes, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. entertainers are people that are just solving some kind of pain. <laughs>
perhaps we should tell people why we're why we're outside and why we're listening to the airplanes here. I, I thought that this was important if this was going to be a longer podcast or at least a medium length. It's hard to say with you. I mean, these things could go on for days, literally. So I made sure that we've got trail mix and we've got uh, sleeping bags here, so night lights, uh, lamps, and cigars. That's really the real reason. So, but if uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much. What is this that I'm smoking here? That is a Quest Array 95. It's delicious. And that's my ride. (laughs) (laughs) That's an old street performer gag where uh, the police car goes by and you say, that's my ride. I mean, we'll talk about busking at some point, I'm sure, because I bust shortly and... Uh, Where did you go? Did you go to Seaport Village down there in San Diego? Or? No, I'm originally from Louisiana, so I was uh, I was in North Louisiana. I was busking in Monroe. I know Monroe well. Yeah, do you? I've got some crazy stories about Monroe. So you are actually able to busk in Monroe? Yeah. Well, so um, when I started college, they opened up this big boardwalk um, kind of market thing on the weekends. And so I would go down there and set up a table much like yours and just street perform for four or five hours on a Saturday. So I wasn't like a hardcore busker, but I was, you know, I was pulling in $200 every Saturday. Nice. Nice. It's not a bad hat for no. Monroe, right? Heck no. Not, that's not bad for L.A. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that for about a year. Uh, and that was, I absolutely. Were you from Monroe? Get out. Yeah. You actually may know the family I have a story about. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Excuse me. Well. <laughs> I'm street performing. The year is 1984. <laughs> I live at the corner of Royal and St. Anne in the French Quarter, which is pretty much right behind the church off the uh, Jackson Square. It's, couldn't be more central. So I live a block away from Bourbon Street, and... Uh, Cellini liked to work during the days on, on uh, Jackson Square, and I worked mostly at night. Uh, usually the uh, Preservation Hall Jazz Band line or Bourbon Street from usually like maybe 10 to midnight. Uh, and I meet this guy, big guy, happy guy, and he says, Boy, <laughs> I like you so much, I want to take you home for my family. I got an airplane over there in Biloxi, and I'd love to take you up to Monroe, Louisiana, and show you a good time. I, f- I feel like I've heard this story before. Maybe you've lived it, too. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm, like, having weird deja vu. Okay, go ahead. So, the guy's name was Mickey Plunk, and he owned uh, car dealerships. Yep. And I hope that I'm not saying anything out of... Out of uh, uh, He'll never hear this. No, it's not, not just that, but, to, but perhaps to you as well. But I found Monroe, Louisiana to be the most shady town I've ever been. <laughs> it was just a, a really, like, for instance, this guy, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure that he had some sort of scam where he was buying wrecked cars and he had a car stretcher and he could fix the frames and sell them as new cars or, or new used cars that weren't necessarily reflecting that they had been in a horrific accident. Uh, you know, this is a different time. I don't think that's entirely possible. Quite, quite get away with this, but anyways, this guy. So he, we, he says, "How quick can you be ready?" And I'm like, "Shit, I can be ready in half an hour." So I go home and I pack a little bag and I come back. And by the way, this is my most Bellini-esque experience I think I ever had, where I, I picked up 
I went with this guy, and I ended up staying a month in, in Monroe, Louisiana. And he was so kind, and he's like, had threw a big lavish party for me, and he said, "This girl is for you. She's gonna be your friend." And and uh, and then he would take me to all of these really, <laughs> I don't know if I would call them sleazy or, or but these little pool halls these crazy little pool halls where people are pounding cocktails in the afternoon the places are dimly lit a lot of smoke in the air and he would have me do these magic shows on the pool table and at the end of it i would pass my hat and he would always start things off by throwing a hundred dollar bill in there so all of his buddies he was humbling his friends into so after a month of being there i i left and i had a just a giant stack of money and, uh, and uh, a great memory and great stories, but uh, I, uh, I I remember Monroe, Louisiana fondly. <laughs> and I think I'd like to go back. I think I'd, I'd like to tell the guy, you know, when, when are we going to do that again? You yeah, know, yeah. That'd be fun. He's a Facebook friend now, too. Really? Wow. So is his daughter. So. That's great. That's really funny. Because um, I, I know the name. I don't think I've ever met him, but I'm sure... My mom knows him probably. My dad, I'm sure. My dad's a lifelong Monroe, Louisiana resident, so that's hilarious. <laughs> yep. Good times. Good memories. Those were the golden age of street performing. Yeah. In the eighties? I think so. You know, I think I was down there in New Orleans in eighty four, was in New York in eighty three and in Boston in eighty five and you know, it was just Cellini was making a thousand dollars a day on Jackson Square. Not to say that that was easy work. He had a uh, an interesting philosophy that I never really got on board with, which was be the first one out in the morning, be the last one to leave at night, and never eat out. And the guy could just eat. He was a cash-making machine. What do you think? How do you get the drive to do street performing as, you know, your profession, basically. I mean, what is it? You well, think? I think that the the drive for me, and it, it's, I, I almost feel now, I had a a ten year run at the Universal City Walk that ended in March. This is kind of an interesting story too. Why I why I got booted out of out of there because of Harry Potter. Oh yeah. Not necessarily because it was Harry Potter, but they had built two new parking garages that each housed 5,000 cars per garage, and they were expecting all this increased traffic, and where the magicians liked to work was sort of a narrower thoroughfare, and we were just going to become, you know, we were going to start impeding the traffic, so they, yeah. they, they bumped us. But I do find it a little ironic that, that I'm no longer performing magic at Universal City Walk. Because of Harry Potter. <laughs> that, that's slightly ironic. But, you know, I think that, that the freedom of it is great because for a decade of living here in Los Angeles, I didn't book very many gigs at all. I didn't even care about it. Yeah. So the freedom of not having to pick up the phone to solicit work, not having to maintain the, a website or, you know, all of the things that real working magicians do to solicit work and to keep their business afloat, I was in a blissful arrangement where I basically could do nothing all day, every day, and go to work for three, four hours a night and make a living. So now that that's been gone since March, I kind of feel like a retired street performer, and I've been booking more gigs and trying to put a lecture tour together and trying to figure out how magicians in the real world can make, <laughs> can make it work. So. Yeah. 
but in terms of what 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 really drives street performers or at least drove me was it seemed a very pure thing to do to go out and to not have a booking not have an audience not have a stage not have lighting and go out there and create it all and have your audience in a and certainly these days with people's attention spans dwindling in fact maybe that's that's worth mentioning is that in the golden era of street performing was pre-internet and pre-cell phone and I do believe that those things undeniably affected people's attention spans you know it used to bother me when people in my front row would be texting and I would you know find a need to call that out for a while but I think it finally wore me down and I got to the point where well if they're texting at least they're not heckling or they're not screwing <laughs> with me. So if you want to text in my front row, it's, it's it got to a point where you get a pass on that. Now, I never liked the idea of people uh, videoing the shows with their camera phones because that takes them out of the moment. Yeah. And they're now they're watching their screen. They're watching TV watching now. You. Yeah. So I never allowed that to happen. Uh, but just the freedom of it. And also, the, the money was good for so many years. And in the last decade that's just seems to at least for me really dwindled down in fact it sort of mutated what I ended up doing on the street because I ended up taking the act out of my act really and for the last several years probably three four five years I, I took the cups out of my act I took the rings out of my act I took the coins out of my act and what I ended up doing was creating the illusion that I was a street performer and how did you do that? <laughs> well, by, by looking like a street performer and sounding like a street performer and doing things to gather the crowd. But once I got the crowd, I took a sharp left turn into commerce where I would go into a trick deck pitch. Mm -hmm. And then based on, the, <clears throat> based on the results of that, I had another deck that I could also pitch. I like to pitch the mental photography deck first because I could do it really quick and have a nice sort of soft sell and see if the kids in the audience, you know, you can usually tell who's interested in uh, in buying a deck because a kid will turn around and, you know, look at his mom or, or you know, there's nonverbal cues that uh, people's interest level. So I, I would do sort of a bait and switch if I felt that that was the deal and go into a stripper deck pitch. And uh, this was all sort of a, a mirroring the decade I spent in retail. Mm -hmm. You know, having started working at Haynes at 12 gave me many years, even before I owned my own shop, to sort of understand the selling psychology and then certainly when the square credit card swipers yeah came on board that was when things really sort of changed in terms of the convenience of sales on the street with people that didn't have much cash uh, so it really turned into a deck, trick deck pitch and so I'd say for the last five years at the city walk I was more of a trick deck pitchman creating you know it looked like a magic show but then at the very end of it it would sort of go from commerce with sharp right turn back into a little bit of a finale and then a hat pass so even if I didn't sell any decks I would be able to to get some mm -hmm. some money in the hat but it's sort of my impression that these days in fact this was the weirdest thing people seem to they'd rather give me a $20 bill for a trick deck than tip me two bucks yeah quite get it but I'm happy that I was able to make a living so yeah yeah so now that that's over I'm trying to figure it out and trying to see what the third act of my life is going to look like yeah if you hadn't been booted from your spot would you still be doing the pitch i think so i yeah. think so it was just 
I don't want to say it was easy, but it was certainly convenient. It's 20 minutes from my house. And the nice thing, the one thing I loved about it too is I could work every night, you know, through the through the busy parts of the season, which were usually, you know, the whole summer, and then a little bit of a lull until you get into Halloween horror nights, and then a little bit of a lull until you get into the Grinchmas, the you know, the holiday yeah. season, and then after that you'd have sort of a dip from January till spring break, and those those were tougher months, but but the convenience of, but even during those slower months, I was working five nights a week. Yeah. And you know, it was the nice thing about that is your chops are on fire. You know, you yeah. just, there's never a point where somebody says, hey, "Can you do a trick?" And oh, I haven't practiced. You know, I have. You know, it's like you're always at. You're always, and I think I miss that. I miss nowadays. It's like, well, gigs are. I don't want to say they're few and far between, but it's like you know, I've only worked maybe twice this week, and and uh, you know, not to say that my my chops are hurting or or, but I'm sure they're they're you know they're just not the nice. You're just tight. You're yeah, just I, I, I totally, I get that, and I miss that about it too. Is because I mean, I was, I liked. I've always been really into sleight of hand and like hard move monkey type stuff. So, I would do difficult sleight of hand tricks on when I was busking. You know, I would start out with uh, Dean Dill's no extras coin routine, and then I would do triumph, and then I would do. Uh, uh, I finished with the cups and I would throw in some other stuff depending on how busy the boardwalk was and you know build the crowd and you know I had this I had this idea of how to build the crowd that I had kind of I got I was I was heavily influenced by Gazzo one of the best yeah ever and yes and that's that's good (laughs) that I was influenced by him because I got good at busking quickly because I studied him and I watched all his videos and I watched all the YouTube clips I could find and I wasn't as funny. I was young. I didn't have the lines. I couldn't be brash and British like him. No, but nobody I, can. Right, exactly. But I didn't. But I, I understood kind of how to play with it's that the mechanics crowd. of of, uh, of crowd building. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and so I, I really enjoyed it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, your chops are on fire when you're doing the same routine and the same tricks and then you it, it becomes so uh, ingrained that now you're outside of it and you're in the crowd as you know you're in it and of it and you know you're playing with the dynamic much more than just doing the tricks which is which I think is most magicians goal even if they don't know that's their goal is like they want to be able to they want to be able to perform perform yeah yeah you know, it's funny that I just uh, taught a uh, six-week class on street performing at the uh, Magic Castle as part of their Magic University. And on the first class, I asked people, I said, how many people actually have any interest in actually street performing? And nobody nobody raised their hand. Yeah. And I sort of asked them, I'm like, well, what, what, what do you... And then I had to clarify. Did you think what? What did you think when you read the thing? Was it, did you think street magic was like David Blaine street magic, or did you think because that's a term that younger magicians they think of street magic as that? And yeah. I remember when the first David Blaine special came out, being frustrated and thinking, <laughs> "Well, this isn't street magic," you know. And yeah. to me, the definition of street magic means asking for money. Yeah. So there's a whole different sort of terminology, and uh, you know. I can't wait to see the, the, the new David Blaine thing. I know. It comes week. out on That's Tuesday. Right. I'm very, very excited. Very exciting. Uh, so, 
what I discovered was people really just wanted to learn how to perform. And, and the final exam for the class was uh, going out into Hollywood and Highland and throwing them into the fire and saying, all right, you know, we've talked about this for five weeks, and now we're going to do it. And so during the second class, I said, well, if, you don't, if nobody in the room wants to street perform, how many of you want to go out and do the final? Because I don't want to be the only one out there doing it. And everybody raised their hand. Wow. And so they all wanted to have the real world experience of performing for strangers, but they weren't necessarily interested in busking or making a living or trying to do it to make money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was asked if I would teach that class again, and I thought well, it, might be a, it might be a better class to not call it a street magic class, but to say it's a performance workshop. And, you know, the, the, and these weren't kids in the class either. These were all, you know, middle-aged people, I would sure. say. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, I uh, I've always I've always liked being in front of people. I've always liked performing, and there's nothing quite as pure as what you what you said earlier, which is, I mean, you said it earlier. There's nothing as pure as going out and not having anything booked and just building everything yourself. And when you get out there, and you're behind your table. And you're gathering a crowd, and you've got your pitch, and you're doing it. I mean, it, there's there's really nothing like it. It can become very tiring, but I mean, when you've got you know a crowd of forty to hundred people that stopped what they were doing to watch you, you I mean, you've you've impacted a huge amount of people yeah, that they had thing. never no idea that. They were gonna and it can be brutal experience. too because you know at any given minute you could lose one person or half your audience or or uh, God forbid it starts to rain your show is over <laughs> yeah uh, but yeah that's that's uh, I think I, I I you know I I'm not sure if I miss it or not I yeah. think I miss going out and doing it every day and I miss the the more consistent money but I do feel like I'm entering a, a different part of my life now yeah. Trying to trying to figure that out. Sort of wonder if I'd like to open up another magic shop or uh, go through another round of uh, uh, magic products. Or mm-hmm. um, what? How were you when you were building your your street act? What was your influence for that? How did you determine what was going to be your act? You know, I'm sure you've heard that uh, this phrase before, but I'm, I'm really a good example of somebody who's made a career on six tricks. Probably more than that, but, but in the essence of it, my act really hasn't changed that much since I was a teenager. And my first steady gig was working at a place called King's Island Amusement Park in Cincinnati, and as a 15-year-old, I had an opportunity to do six 20-minute shows a day, six days a week. Wow. In 1981, they were paying me 250 bucks a week, so it was great. You you work 20 minutes, you take a 40 minute break. Work 20 minutes, and I'm like, screw college, screw high school. I don't need anything. This is great. So I really developed a lot of the the beginning of that act then, and then I ended up moving to New York City, and I'm like, all right, well, I do the cups and I do this, and I do the you know I always opened with the cups and finished with the rings and. I think that when I I got to study with Cellini, and that was a real mentor program. You know, I 
it's funny people some people say to me they think that I'm, that I'm their mentor yeah and it's like I've only met you once yeah you know how could I be your mentor I you know and to me that word means something like like street performing it means something to me specific and the way that I, I studied with Cellini was we would go out daily for about nine months and he would say I'm gonna show you how to build the tip create mm -hmm. the perimeter and he had a wonderful little trick of uh, having people come right up to the table and then when he had you know 10 or 15 people there he would pull the table back about 15 feet yeah and then he would be able to expand the perimeter that way and what I learned, and I had been doing the cups and balls, and I had been doing everything in my routine, but I don't think that I really had that an opportunity to really learn how to perform. And it was when I was 19 years old that really started solidifying how to take the tricks that I was doing and turn them into an act. Yeah. And so everything from the cups to the rings to the coins to to the cards, you know, everything got sort of a different stamp on it in terms of. How do you take it from looking at what's in your hands to looking, you know, bringing it up to to shoulder level and having your head in the frame in terms of uh, of that? And it's funny as I say that I was, you know, thinking about that was the beautiful thing when Three Fly came about. And once again, being in the Midwest with with Kenner and Homer and those guys, yeah, watching a trick like that go from <coughs> being a very obscure obscure trick to having you know i mean that's a bell-shaped curve that trick is gone yeah you know all the way up here and even 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 now people are continuing to create new ways to do to do it and yeah uh, all of the latest gizmos and devices and uh, you know it's funny i've always had a sensibility about that sort of stuff where i think you saw the set of cups that i use and and i, I say no nice things for me you know, <laughs> just rough on my props and I, you know can you imagine what I would do to a lasso shell out there on the street, you know, it would, day one I'm done. Yep. So I, I still do the three fly that uh, was the original from the, yeah, yeah. the very beginning. I know there are better and more sophisticated ways to do it these days, but I'm sort of still stuck on. Uh, it's on pure. Again, version, it's pure. One, 1 yeah, I mean it, it makes it makes total sense. Go out there with the least amount of stuff you need to do the best act you can do. I feel like. Because that's, I feel like that's <clears throat> one of the differences between hobbyists and pros is like pros get what they need to do the show they want to do, and then hobbyists get all the stuff, and then never do a show. <laughs> you know, they do. They love to. They are consumers, aren't they? Yeah, which is great. I mean, I I run a magic company. Like yeah. I'm all about it. But uh, I think I think the the main problem is people don't know what's good or how to make it good for themselves and so they're searching and I, I'm speaking from experience because this is what I went through I and I'm sure everybody goes through this at some point you're looking for the trick that you think is going to be your thing that's going to speak to you on some level and you get to a point where you go I can't find somebody else's thing that will be for me it's, it, it's this weird thought process you have to go through of like this is I have to make my own thing I have to figure out what sure. I want and yep. then you know I've been lucky in the way that I've crafted my uh, my act because and, and something that Cellini once said to me early on was if you can make money on the streets you can work any venue 
you can do corporate magic, you can do trade shows, you can do private parties, you can do cruise ships, you can do nightclub work. And I found that to be true and that I went from the streets, <coughs> then sort of going into festivals, then going into the comedy clubs. I was lucky enough to do a few years in the comedy club market when that was booming. It was peaking. I don't even think people could realize what it was like back in the early 90s. There was, heck, a, a city of Cincinnati with only maybe a million people or a million and a half people. We had five full-time comedy clubs. Wow. The Funny Bone Circuit was huge, you know, all of the... And then they had a whole nother sort of B and C club rooms of... Uh, God, it was just... I had a couple of guys, one guy out of Louisville, I think, named uh, Tom Sobel, and then another guy out of Cleveland named Keith Gisser, and they would put you on these one-nighter tours. And these were rooms that were not full-time comedy clubs, but they might have been in Huntington, West Virginia. In fact, it's a funny story. Only time I think I've ever seen my son, my, my name on a marquee, and I have a little video of this. Is, <laughs> I said I always wanted to see my name on lights, and then I shine up, and you see Tom Frank, comedy magician, and then I pull back a little bit, and it's right underneath the Econolodge sign. <laughs> <laughs> and so they had a, you know, a bar or lounge, in, in there and one night a week on Friday night or Thursday night they would have comedy night and so they would have I proudly tell people I've worked the worst rooms in the country working all these but they were great yeah. you know you'd make a few hundred bucks a night and the uh, the uh, the routing was always great your next town was never more than two or three hours away and you could be gone for a month or two on these sort of tours and yeah and uh, so taking I guess what I'm trying to say is the same six tricks that I just did last night filling in for somebody doing a restaurant gig was pretty much most or you know part of my act in my street show as well as in my nightclub show as well as in my stage show so regardless of the booking that I get it's really going to be the same show yeah you know the cups may be bigger uh, the rings may be bigger but it's still Finishing with the rings, opening with the cups, and certainly don't do that at the you know table to table. But yeah, I forgot how how fun that is to do table to table magic. Yeah, yeah, you know it's it's really it's, it doesn't get any more intimate than that than to be literally that close to them. And I'd forgotten that the power of that. You know, I think that a lot of us, I don't want to say people look down their nose, the end of their nose at at people that do table hopping, but it's a uh, Heck, I was happy to have the happy to have the king last night. So. Yeah, yeah. But it was also nice, and and it, I guess speaking to the six trick sort of thing is, I'm halfway through my night and I'm thinking, should I mix it up? Should I should I do my B and C stuff just to to work it in? And I did that for a little while, but I was like, God, I really like the the A material the best, and I always have, and you know, I think I have. If people don't say it to me, I wonder if they're thinking, don't you ever get sick of that after 35 years of doing it? And I just don't. You know, I don't get sick of the look on their face Yeah. You know, when the moment happens. And, you know, that's how I get to that moment. Because so. it's not about you, right? Yeah, and they've never seen it before. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's another thing that separates. I, I don't know that it's necessarily pro versus hobbyist. I don't want to put hobbyist down, but it's people... I mean, you get it's a certain level of magical maturity where it becomes not about you. You know, you're doing this for people for the fact that they've never seen anything like this. You know, there's a lot of magicians, but most people have never seen one in real life. I think one nice thing that hobbyists have over pros 
and I think that you might agree with this that some of the best magicians are hobbyists. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, you look at a guy like Tony. Tony Chang, I think he has very little desire to go out there and make money doing magic. He's got a great job, he's got a great life, and he's one of the top underground magicians going. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I think that there is a purity that they get to enjoy where money and making a living off of it isn't part of the equation. Yeah. Where when you're trying to figure out how to put a mortgage payment together, it puts it puts There's more a pressure. More, yeah, a little more pressure, a little more stress on that. So. Yeah. That's one of the reasons that I stopped busking is because I it got to the point where because I was still in college and I was getting my education and but I I got to the point where I was like I don't want people to expect me to perform and it had kind of gotten to that point where I was going every week and people were like oh we got to go see the magician and then it became like well what if I don't want to go. And then I was like, now I'm doing this thing that I love when I don't want to do it, and it's tarnishing it and, and poisoning it a little bit for me. And so I kind of stepped back from it. And I don't know if that was the right decision or not. I, I mean, I, I still love it. I still enjoy it. I have the itch to go out and you know throw a table down somewhere. I don't know what the legal ramifications are for it here. And you know maybe that's something that, that you could talk about is how is the... How's the the legal perception of busking changed over the years? Well, I think that the advice that Cellini gave me still holds true. If you want to find out if it's legal somewhere, <laughs> go out and do it. Yeah. You'll find out very quickly. And you'll also find out what the rules are. Because if a cop is going to shut you down and you're polite, they should be able to tell you, well, you know, for instance, here you can go and do it Hollywood and Highland. It's wide open. It's a cesspool of humanity and probably the toughest pitch on the West Coast, maybe. I mean, this is... In fact, L.A. in general is one of the worst cities that I've ever worked. Really? In terms of just people have seen it all, they've done it all, and they look at you as though you're homeless. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because it's like, all right, I've got a $900 microphone and a $1,000 sound system, and, you know, I'm not, I, don't, I don't look homeless. And, but, but they see you on the street next to the breakdancers and next to the guy selling balloons and next yeah. to... That guy doesn't have a real job. He's yeah. gross, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it, it's, and it, you know, it didn't used to be that way. I think that there used to be people were just happier back back in the day. You know, people were uh, less cynical, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And certainly now this week. Oh God, uh, I don't know when this will air, but uh, maybe we should tell people that this is two days after the election. So yeah, this will come out next week. Oh really? Or actually on Thursday? Yeah. Wow, far out. Yeah, I'll drink to that. Cheers. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, I know. I'm still. I'm still feeling it. <laughs> but uh, um, it's a brave new world. It is. Uh. So, if, for the listeners who might not know who Cellini is, will you give a little bit of backstory and why he's so important to busking? Yeah. In fact, you know, it's. it's well, I guess first I'll just t- tell you a little bit about who he is. His name was Richard Sullivan. And he was a Slidini student in the 60s. And after he studied with Slidini, he was in a rock band and ended up doing, Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, he was the lead <laughs> singer in a rock band. And he would do, you know, and it must have been sort of a late 60s, early 70s sort of, you know, I don't know what kind of band it was, but I can only imagine that it was sort of 
it sounds sort of psychedelic to me in okay. the way that he would describe it because I don't know how you fit in a fountain of scarves into a rock and roll show <laughs> while, you're, while you're singing. So, but he would do beautiful sliding magic on stage with this rock band, and then I guess that you know after the rock band thing, he ended up getting the urge to street perform for the first time. And if I I think the story goes like this, and I just had breakfast this morning with Bob Sheets, but Bob Sheets was working in Colorado with Steve Spill at the Jolly Jester, I think, and Bob would go out there and street perform in order to get a crowd to come into the bar to see the bar shows, and I'm pretty sure that Cellini saw him work and got this idea, and I think that Bob Sheets was wearing the leather pouch, the gibberchet. Mm. How do you say that, by the way? I say gibissier. Gibissier. Yeah. Interesting. I don't think I've heard that one. Really? Yeah, gibissier. 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 I, look, I don't know if I'm right or not. but It's a French word, right? Yeah. Gibberchet. Gibissier. I have no idea. I don't know. We'll have to... We'll have to here. Anybody knows? Write in comments. Yeah, there email podcast at Art of Magic with the proper pronunciation of Jubisier. Um But but so Cellini got this idea that he wanted to be a street performer, and he created this character that was so vibrant and so unique. He sort of looked like a gypsy, mm-hmm. and it's a shame that that uh, Cosmo of Real Magic. Uh, he had some wonderful DVDs of uh, Cellini and some street performing stuff, but the sad thing about those was they didn't reflect the guy that I knew yeah. when I worked with him. Cellini led a uh, a hard life. I can't say that he was really that much of a drinker or a drug or anything like that, but he probably smoked two and a half packs of non-filtered camels a day. Jesus, and he, you know he worked these long hours street performing, and he had all of this equipment that he would wear on his body daily and he liked to do this cannonball production so he was wearing this cannonball hanging off his ass and and you know his table and this was sort of before the day of even pull carts of carrying your rig around that way you had shoulder straps on your table and suitcases didn't have wheels on them back in the day and yeah and uh so when i saw him i think the first time i saw him was i was 15 years old Went down to, uh, my dad lived in Atlanta, and I was visiting my pops, and he, uh, I guess the uh, Georgia Bulldogs were in the Sugar Bowl, when, I guess Herschel Walker was a big player, and he wanted to, to go to this. So we went to New Orleans for the Sugar Bowl, and I see this magician walking down the street with a scowl on his face and a broken wand in his hand. <laughs> And he was this looking. sounds made up. <laughs> no, he looked. He was pissed. He must have broken his wand and had to go back to his apartment to get another one yeah. before he could do his other shows. But because it was the Sugar Bowl and because there were roughly fifty thousand people, maybe more, in from out of town, it was a huge tourist weekend. Yeah, and this so is the every, worst time to break your wand. Exactly. So yeah. he, he comes back, and I end up uh, watching a few of his shows, and I uh, go to meet him afterwards. He's hanging out at this coffee shop, and. I, I'm 15 years old, and I'm like, hey, I'm a magician. And it's funny, I think I've started to do this a little bit in my middle age, where if somebody says they're a magician, he said, he threw a deck at me and said, do something. <laughs> and I'd love that. I just, you know, it's like, and I, and I think when, I'm a, when I street perform now, and somebody says, oh, I'm a magician, the first thing I say is, oh, oh would you like to do something for the gang? Yeah. 
and then I, I think that's fascinating. I'm going to talk about that. I, I, I want you to finish your story first, but I definitely want to talk about that in particular. So I'm going to write that down. Well, Please he, finish your story. He, uh, so I see him, and to try to describe him from the, from the ground up, he had these knee-length leather boots that were brown. Then he had his pants tucked into him that were sort of like these gypsy pants. And then he, he liked to perform with no shirt on and a vest. And he had this... <laughs> necklace made out of horseshoe nails that was sort of triangular shaped that would come down to his breastbone. Pretty big necklace. And then he had this hat with a uh, maybe a scarf around it or, or something and he had silks hanging off of his, he had the gibberchet in the front and then he had another, le- another uh, leather bag in the back where he would keep his ropes and his money and the uh, cannonball was back there and uh, and uh, uh, so he just looked like something out of a fairy tale. He didn't look like anything of this time. Yeah. And he had this mustache that sort of like a Fu Manchu, but it would sort of go off of his chin down another, you know, down another two inches. And it was weird, too, because it was black from his nose down to his chin, and then it turned white. He's like Ra's al Ghul. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it was, right. it was sort of long like that. And he just had this look... And he had this magical quality about him, and uh, he had this fake stutter. He didn't stutter in real life, but he had this slight stutter in his performance that was really endearing. Yeah. Uh, so he was just this guy with this great background in magic, certainly studying with Slidini for, for more than a few years. In fact, I think Slidini wanted him to be his star pupil, but I think I've talked to other people, and they've told me that Slidini wanted every student to be their star pupil and when when and I guess when he took you as a student and wanted you to grow in that way he would hand embroider one of those bullfighter sort of outfits wow you know and I think I saw in the Rocky Ricky Jay documentary that he had done one of those for Ricky Jay wow and uh, he did one for Cellini and there were a few other guys uh, uh, I think Bill Wish was one of those guys and Charlie Camber was one of those guys and and uh when Cellini started working the streets, it broke Slidini's heart because he's like, "You're going to take my beautiful magic, and you're going to." But then I think at, uh, later he got to see Tim perform on the street and sort of got it then. Yeah. But that's a little bit of who he was, and uh, he get he got a great reputation for you know he was sort of slightly pre Gazo in terms of when he started. You know, I think I was in. Boston in 84 and that might have been maybe the first time Gazo came over and they had very different acts and very different uh, very different personalities and very you know you couldn't really compare the two but he was just sort of one of the, the godfathers of uh, modern day street magic Yeah, and certainly he's got a, a couple of great books out there, The Royal Touch is a good one and then A, a Dreamer's Highway is another good one and then the Cosmo DVDs you know there's really no shortage of, of stuff you could learn about Cellini if you wanted and I highly recommend those books um, not just for the magic tricks in them which are good but just the, the texture of his life and the texture of who he was and he got very disheartened uh, in his middle age with the states and ended up moving to Switzerland and sort of staying over there for the rest of his life and what happened I mean it's you know I think he just didn't like uh, you know it might have to do with the sensibility of people's outlook on street performing in Europe it's a much more 
culturally accepted thing. It's been part of the texture of their culture for hundreds of years. Yeah. Whereas in America, it wasn't really until the, you know, the renaissance of street performing in America starting in probably the 70s. You know, I mean, you look at guys that were on the ground floor with that, like Penn and Teller and people like Carrie Anderson and Amazing Jonathan and Cellini and uh, Bob Sheets and, and guys like that that were sort of into it in I would, I would assume that it was sort of like in the mid to late 70s when that sort of started. And then by the 80s turned around, then it was like, now you've got guys like me and my, my best friend, Sean Eric, and, and uh, a host of younger guys coming out to learn from guys like Cellini or guys like Gazzo. And, and then through the 90s into the 2000s, the world just started changing. <coughs> and... Uh, you know, I'm not sure at what point attention spans dwindled, but I really sort of think it was post-internet, post-cell phones, and certainly with the more whiz-bang cell phones get, you know. In fact, I was working a table, I was doing this restaurant gig last night, and I go up to a table, and it's two people, a husband and a wife, and they're both on their phones. Isn't that sad? Isn't that just break your heart? Yeah, and then so I, I didn't want to ignore them, but I, I sort of knew that I knew they weren't going to want to see any magic, but I, I felt like it was at least my job to go up and approach them. And uh, sure enough, they, you know, he, the guy says, well, I would, but I'm in the middle of something. And I said, well, that, that, that's okay. You guys have a good night. And then I walked by and I wanted to say, in the middle of your Facebook update, dude, seriously, you can't put that down for 30 seconds. You're having dinner with your wife. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that's a huge pet peeve of mine, but it's about again, it's about being present. It's about being in the moment, and that kind of is—I mean—it goes back to being behind the table during street performing. Is you can't be more present than creating an act in front of a group of people that don't didn't know they wanted to see you. It is exciting when it works. Yeah, <laughs> and it can be—it can be the most brutal, humiliating thing when it's not working. And I think that's. If I learned anything in all of my years of street performing was you have to get to a zen place with it. It can't be about the money. Yeah. And it can't really be... In fact, I had a rule where... My rule was you have to go home as soon as it stops being fun. That's a great rule. Because once you've stopped having fun, you know, it's uh, self-defeating. You know? Yeah. And especially Also, if you're just out there for the money... It's also self-defeating, which is a very difficult mind frame to get into when that's why you're out there. This yeah. is my job. I am out there for money. But you really have to sort of bless and release before you set up and say it's going to be what it's going to be. You know, it's either going to happen or it's not. I'm going to make money or I'm not. I'm going to stop them or not. And and you have to be good with that. So. Well, it makes sense for longevity, too, because if you can't, if you keep doing it when you're not having fun, you're not going to want to keep doing it. So it's better in the long run financially and logistically if you stop when you're not enjoying it anymore. It just makes sense. Yeah. So what kind of cup and ball routine did you do out there on the street? <laughs> I did um, I did Yazzo's finale. I tweaked it a little bit. Some of the changes or uh, some of the the loads are all basically the same, but the so timing's you do, like a little different. So did you do six oranges then? Or? Six oranges and, uh, and a grapefruit or a it was, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, but it was, you know, just... So a, did you have a giant pouch like him? I, I have one of his pouches. Right on. I bought a pouch from Gezer. That's funny. And, I, and Gary Animal made me the last set of cups that he ever made. Awesome. 
set 101 of the Gazo Cups. Sweet. Yeah. Those are great. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Gazo was nice enough to gift me a set of his cups when a, a session up in Seattle. That's great. It's nice. I I nerded out so hard when I got to interview him because I mean he was he was my hero. I thought that was funny that you had to give a disclaimer at the beginning of that. <laughs> I thought he was going to truly be inflammatory when you said that, and I'm like, there's nothing in there that really. No, is. there's not. But you know, he's, some of he's the people he's opinionated, but but yeah. who isn't? You know, I, I, no, I, you're right. Yeah. I thought that was funny though. That you haven't had to do that on any other. I one haven't had to do that on any other one. <laughs> I've never had a guest like him. You know, I mean, well, like he is one of a kind. For he's sure. he's one of a kind. He's I mean, he's definitely entitled to everything. I mean, he's earned the respect of everybody, and I just I know that the people that I hang out with are like super reverent to Vernon and he was saying some stuff about Vernon I just wanted to be like alright prepare yourself put your big boy hats on like yeah, you know yeah. he may say some things that you disagree with and I didn't like I I th- this podcast is about creating a safe open space where anybody can say whatever they want to and so I was on board for it I, I didn't necessarily agree with him but I also don't have the information that he has yeah and you know so, what like you said you know I mean as you were listening to it I thought it was funny you yeah know, I just thought especially when he became very opinionated yes know, I thought that it was just uh, I loved it it was just yeah. it's just Gazo being Gazo <laughs> loved him yeah I was super happy about it but I, I mean I got to say I'd never seen him perform live he was working the castle and so I got to see him do uh, his his egg bag and some other tricks and it was it was awesome he's a great study in timing yeah he's just not in a rush to do anything he's not in a rush to do anything and i love that because i think that that's something that even as a more mature performer now i still struggle with i still find that i may be too eager to to push things in a certain direction or, or get to a joke or or you know he's just got this great sense of sitting back and letting it letting it percolate yeah and letting it uh, evolve yeah organically i would imagine that that comes from the fact that he's prepared for every situation that could possibly arise too yeah no, and i'm not saying that you're not of course but i just mean like no he's much more prepared than <laughs> I, am. I, I don't think i've ever met anyone that had such an encyclopedic joke reference in their head it's amazing it's it is amazing oh yeah gosh. and i don't i don't think i know four jokes you know if somebody said you know I know. I feel the same way. That's one of those things that I wish I had. I wish I knew like a bunch of jokes. I wish I knew clean jokes. I wish I knew really dirty, disgusting jokes and awful jokes that you can only tell in the dark. And like you know, like I wish I had all of that, but I just don't. I can't remember anything that I hear. I think the older that I get, the more I realize that I'm not funny. <laughs> in fact, my wife has helped me understand that. That, that uh, what I think is funny. Yeah. In fact, she says, I'm king of not funny. You're king of not funny. King of not funny. And this is how I, I, I've learned now to sort of, I have a tool in my tool belt to figure it out that if I think it's funny, I can almost be assured that it's not funny. And that I have a better chance of being funny by not trying to be funny. Okay. You know, if it's... When I'm not trying to be funny, I have a better chance, right? Like, like so what, but, can you give me an example? You of... know, I'll give you an example. And, and I guess <laughs> this is this is something that I have, I, this is one of my favorite jokes in my act, always has been. And I say to the audience, have you ever seen magic coins before? And they say yes or no or whatever. And I say, I have some magic coins. And I dig deep into my pocket and I'm like, oh, nope, that's my dick. <laughs> 
And now, I, guess, I love that. Well, what I'm learning though is just because people laugh doesn't make it funny. Okay. Now there is, you know, a dick joke's a dick joke. A dick it's joke the is the lowest a dick common joke. denominator in, in comedy. I do believe that. And yeah. That you will typically get a joke with a laugh with a dick joke, but. You know, it's not necessarily... It's not clever. It's not clever or appropriate or necessarily funny. Now, I, to me, you know, that's a good example of what I think is funny. And I've had a lot of people like you that go, no, no, that's funny. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I get confused when people tell me when I'm funny because I'm just now getting under the... I'm finally getting comfortable with the idea that, all right, I'm not that funny. Don't try to be funny. Yeah. You, you probably have a better chance of being funny when you're not trying to be funny. But I don't know. I some And then, you know, God, us magicians were so bad with these... Hack lines and yes. hack jokes, yeah. and you know, I like to do experiments sometimes where I just try to take out every joke in my act, whether I think it's funny or not, and just do the same routine, but without you know, without the lines. Yeah, and then you know, I mean, Cellini always had this cup and ball line. Here, I'm going to make the ball vanish in my hand. I'm going to give it a squeeze. You don't squeeze it too hard; it'll go blind. That's you know, I mean, it's. But. It may get a laugh, but Dad, it's, I'm not, over here. it's not funny. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, it's, and so I guess I'm trying to learn these days that, you know, leave the funny stuff to Gaza. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love, I love comedy, and I love analyzing comedy, and I love listening to people that are comedians talk about comedy. And, I mean, you're basically, it, when you make somebody laugh, you're basically just subverting their expectation. So when you reach into your pocket and you go, no, that's my dick... You've just subverted their expectation. That is funny. Is it clever? Not necessarily, but it's definitely funny because it's not what they were expecting. Yeah, and, and that's kind of has you know. I mean, I don't exactly. You know, yeah, but I don't know. I guess I perhaps I'm 51 now. Yeah, and I'm, I just have a. I don't know whether I'll be I'll ever be able to take that joke out of my act, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's. I think it's. I think the the older you get, the funnier the line is. I do you? <laughs> yes, the more inappropriate it is, the funnier it is. Especially if you're like table hopping at a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, I did not use that line at all. In fact, it was funny. There's a lot of lines. Like, there's another line that I always think is funny. It's like, have you guys ever seen a coin fall up? No. Have you ever done any acid? <laughs> not funny. I disagree. Because the reason I disagree is because that's authentic to you. I look at you and I go, you're wearing a tie-dye t-shirt with a skeleton on it. You probably have done acid at some point in your life. That joke is authentic to you. I think the funny thing is is I can tell immediately who's, who's done acid at the table based on their reaction. In fact, I, like, I did say that at one table last night based on, on you know the looks of the people at the table. The yeah, one yeah. guy said, not tonight. <laughs> well, how do you when, you, when you're building a crowd or when you're approaching a table, how do you read the people that are... That are around you. How do you know which spectator to pick or which well, person to engage? I learned a thing last night that was very. In fact, I, this is crazy. I'm filling in for a fellow named George Tobar. It's a wonderful magician here in L.A. and an actor. He was in that movie Shade. Remember that movie? Mm-hmm. I think he gets shot in the first scene. But uh, <laughs> I'm filling in for him at this sports bar, the Dugout Sports Bar and Grill in Simi Valley, California, and I can't think. The first time I worked it, I was totally uh, flummoxed. Is that a word? Yeah. Uh, I had to ask the owner last night, how many TVs are in here? 
16. 42 televisions. Fucking A. There is no place that you can sit in this restaurant and not see three or four TVs. And I'm like, well, this isn't exactly optimum for close-up magic, intimate table-side magic, but I'm here, I'm being paid, I may as well. And I, I'd say I stayed busy 85% of the night last night on a slowish night. Yeah. But I learned something about people that may or may not want to see, people that have situated themselves to watch the TV. Yeah. Like, all right, you know that if a husband and wife are sitting in a booth, but they're both on the same side of the table facing a screen, they may not be... And then there was some soccer game going on yesterday, so people were... Uh, I hope your audience isn't too uh, pissed off with these planes going overhead. You know, we've got an air show going on here in Van Nuys. I, I did ask Elliot if uh, I, I said, "Can we can we do this in a uh, cigar friendly environment?" Because uh, I thought the idea of a seven hour conversation was going to be <laughs> tough <laughs> tough to do with, without that. But uh, once again, if you feel like we should go in, just let me know. But, That's uh, fine. Um, but so you learned to to read the body language as if they yeah, were wanting. Yeah, and you know, I think that, you know, it's hard. I forgot that it's hard to approach a table, but I think I've also done some strolling magic gigs. And I think the most important thing when you do this is just to give them an out. And this used to be my approach. Good evening. I'm here to amaze, amuse, and possibly confuse you. Would you care to see a little magic or am I interrupting? Yeah. And I've sort of shortened that down with, once again, potentially a not funny line, but... Would you like to see some magic, or should I go away? <laughs> see, I like that. I don't know. I, I like that. I'll line. tell you what, though. It did snap him out. Like what? And I'm like, "Here's my buddy." So, or should I go away? I like that. Yeah. That's well, you funny. know, and you know what? Some of the people they did want you to go away. You know, they were like cell phone, the cell phone couple. They they didn't yeah. have any interest. Uh, yeah. I always, I'm always fascinated by how people approach tables and the lines that they use. Uh, one of my friends, Nick Defot, I did an episode with him, and I think he mentions it in the episode, but when he, he only ever did table hopping a little bit, but his line was, um, he wouldn't tell him that he was a magician. He would walk up and he'd be like, I'm the paid entertainer for the evening. Would you like to see me perform? And they would either say yes or no, and when they would say yes, he would go, okay, move your drinks out of the way so I don't knock him over when I'm dancing. And it was just a, he's just like this super awkward, like weird, pale looking kid from Minnesota. And so that, I think to me, is a very funny, non sequitur, absurdist kind of approach to, because it is an absurd thing that you're doing, walking up to people and being like, hey, can I interrupt this experience that you're having to then do seemingly impossible things for you? And so, like, juxtaposing that next to this absurdist, I'm going to get on your table and dance, and I'm a pasty white kid that looks like Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, you know, like, I, I like that kind of thing. So I love the line, you know, do you want to see some magic, or should I go away? I like that. It's, it's quick, it's to the point, you're, you know, you're giving them the out, which is important, I think. It was fun. I had a great time doing it. You know, I don't, uh, you know, the funny thing about those gigs is the hardest part of restaurant magic is getting that gig and after being in fact I've been out of booking gigs for almost 20 years now because 10 years at the city walk and the previous 10 years in retail 
In fact, the last time I tried to book gigs, you had to send out a VHS tape. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's nice that things have gone web-based, and it's nice that, uh, you know, I wanted to talk something that's just been on my mind. It, it, uh, I don't know if it's appropriate in a podcast like this, but for younger listeners out there that may be thinking about a career in magic, which I always thought was a great idea, and... I've never had a real job in my life. Yeah. I've never worked for anyone else other than clients. Now that I'm 51 years old, I'm asking the question, what does the third act of my life look like and what does financial security look like? And if there are younger listeners out there, and I know there are, and your parents are telling you, you should go to college and maybe have something to fall back on that that's not necessarily a bad idea. I, you know, I decided not to do that and here I am 51 years old and I've had a I've had a decent career. I, you know, I've I've done interesting things and I've traveled around the world and I've made a decent living, but in terms of the idea of retirement, it's really not it's not in my future right now. So I'm I'm looking at things in a very different way where it's like, well, if it's going to be magic, what does that look like? Yeah. And if it's not going to be magic, what does that look like? Or if it's a combination of the two, you know, I think that I would probably have a more stable uh, outlook on the future with either an entrepreneurial, uh, you know, I, I thought I did, I owned magic shops and toy stores and went to China to manufacture. And, you know, there's a lot of other things besides just performing that can help create that financial stability. But I think it's important that as you begin to look at a potential career in magic that, that you say, well, what what does that look like? You know, I've got two ex-wives and four kids and, and uh, my third wife and, and uh, it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's something I'm, something I'm thinking about. So what do you think it, what are you looking at for the third act? You know, I really don't know yet. I've been, uh, it's great, they have a great resource here in L.A. called the Actors Fund. And they've been around since Buffalo Bill Cody's days. And anyone in the entertainment industry can take advantage of some resources here. It's mostly in L.A. and New York, but they have something called the Career Center. And what they specialize in is they specialize in people in the entertainment industry that are interested in either finding sideline work mm-hmm. while they're not gigging or transitioning out of the entertainment industry altogether. <clears throat> so I've been going to some entrepreneur classes and to financial wellness classes and to, you know I went to a branding class the other day and a workshop, three hour workshop that'll be repeated next week for part two of that and uh, so I'm just trying to figure it out. You know I, I uh, I've never really wanted to do anything else in my life but magic, but as I look at most of my friends who are professional magicians, and I'm asking them the same things, what are you doing to prepare for financial security? You know, it's not something that you really think about in your 20s, 30s, or 40s. You know, yeah. I, I just, you know, you're doing well, you're making some money, you're, you know, you're either saving money or you're not saving money, but it doesn't necessarily inform you how to put together what it would take to be comfortable in the twilight years and we're certainly living longer 
In fact, I think I heard this statistic the other day that we're living 36 years longer than our great-grandparents. Wow. So people that were only living into their 60s or maybe 70s are now living into their, you know, into their 90s. And yeah. uh, it's a much longer haul. And, you know, you look at even some of the greats, you know. You look at a guy like Di Vernon or people like Larry Jennings or people that, that uh, you know, those magicians typically aren't necessarily thinking about that as they as they enjoy their lives and careers in magic. And, yeah. And so, you know, and I like to think that some of the skills that I had as an entrepreneur, as a magic shop owner and a toy store owner, that those are transferable skills. And, you know, could I... Could I go on to manage somebody else's store, or could I, you know, do I want to open up another store? I would love to open up another magic shop here in L.A. Yeah. In fact, I found a wonderful location, but they want $7,000 a month for it. <laughs> Space has been empty for five years. Wow. And they don't want to wheel and deal with it. So, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. I think this is the first year that I've really started thinking, well, there is a clock that's ticking, and... and uh, I would like to be a little more financially solvent in, in that third act. What was the... I mean, I, this isn't like an expose kind of thing, but I mean, what, what brought about sort of the the pressure of like... What, I mean, so I guess in March you got... Yeah, I think, that, I, think that was, I think that's what it was. It, yeah. was. it was like, all right, well, now I'm going from making money to not making money. Yeah. And that became very scary. Yeah. And luckily... Luckily, I've had a decent run since then. You know, I've, I've, uh, in fact, my wife told me she says I've booked more shows in the last few months than I did in the previous few years. Yeah. So, you know, it's not as though I'm incapable of that, but it's certainly, sure. it's like, all right, you know, if, if it is magic that I want to continue to pursue, I'm going to have to do it like the rest of y'all and, and, uh, you know, revamp my website. And perhaps, you know, I'm hoping that the, uh, in fact, I was hoping that this, this, a podcast might because you know I, not having been a very public magician most of my career I'm not like a, a, a very recognizable name yeah you know so it's like I'm not you know Bob Sheets he's done plenty of videos plenty of lecture tours and you know guys like Gazo and they've, they've been sort of in the public eye of magicdom where I have never really never really done much of that mm-hmm so I'm hoping that perhaps with this podcast and, and this potential, not potential, it's actually happening. It's a cross-country lecture tour in March or in, in the springtime. And, what, mm-hmm. and the plan is just to leave L.A., you know, go all the way across the country and then all the way back. Yeah. And uh, we've started building dates around a hub in the Midwest, which, which is looking pretty good right now. I think we've got about nine dates in March with only a few days off there which is nice and this the guy Tom Craven who I've known since I was probably 13 years old he's putting the lecture tour together and I think he he boasted that he put a 31 city lecture tour together for Josh J so I'm I'm hoping that uh, that uh, something similar could happen for me and I'm hoping that the podcast that if there are people in various parts of the country hear this and and think that it might be fun to uh, see a lecture and learn some tricks and learn a little bit about street performing and, and you know we do everything from knuckle, knuckle busting sleight of hand to to uh, self working tricks and, and everything between so hoping that, that maybe creating a little more brand awareness yeah might, you might. fooled me very badly at the Magic Castle um, uh, Chad 
was it with Chad Long when he was yeah, there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, Chad and myself and Dave Buck were sitting around at, at the little Vernon table that Howard haunts, and uh, I say that lovingly. And uh, you came over and we started, you know, showing each other magic tricks, and I think you showed a a trick to Chad that you said it was some obscure thing in an old book and. Actually, I think I remember what it was, and this is not. This is something of my own. If I'm not mistaken, this is. Did I do the three card mental problem? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, I was, was very badly so. fooled by that. Yeah, that's something that I've been playing with for about thirty years, and and uh, it's funny. I I, uh, I never really talked much about it or taught it much, uh, but I had an opportunity uh, to do one of those Murphys at the table things, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if that might be a good place to to talk about that or certainly on the lecture tour there's not going to be anything that's that's uh and for Off those limits. of you out there listening if you wanted to uh go on youtube and just type in three card mental problem you might you might see see that up there a couple times because been doing that for years and years but that's a little pet effect and yeah it was, it was great um so yeah i think that that that's going to be great one of my favorite things to watch you do is the swe shift ah, that's funny that's great <laughs> the most useless move in magic, huh? Right? How did you go about learning that? What was the... You know, that's an interesting story. And that, that I think it's like a, maybe a 13 or 14-year-old when I was getting into Erdenace. Mm. And I had great mentors back then. You know, even as a younger person. There was a fellow named Larry Pringle in, uh, in Cincinnati and another fellow named Paul Swinford who was the author of uh, Pharaoh Fantasies and more Pharaoh Fantasies. Uh, they were you know sort of very very important to us and uh what was the question <laughs> getting into the SW show oh yeah so we were we were learning you know he basically turned us on to Erdnase and as people as we were learning things me and my friend Sean as we were learning things there I wanted to I found I was asking them well what's this SWE shift and it's like nobody could really do it or or, mm-hmm. or show it to me and and so I wanted to learn a few things like that as a young person because I thought that it gave me some street cred getting into right? sessions above my pay grade. Right. That's so, the, yes. So doing a, a decent SWE shift sort of got me into the sessions at the precursor suite at the Magi Fest with Gary Plants and Mike Amar in those early years. And uh, yeah. that was another great... Uh, great podcast you did with Gary Plants that, Gary. Was, that was like and especially the ones with you and Homer I feel like I've lived these you know it's like these this this was our crew back in the day these yeah, were yeah. the guys then and it wasn't as though we saw Gary all that much but he lived in Huntington West Virginia and we were you know Cincinnati was probably I don't know maybe six seven hours away and Columbus was sort of probably closer to me than to him but we would see him every year there and he was the only guy dealing bottoms the way that that he back there was no one else doing that stuff yeah uh the way that he did it and so that was sort of it and uh you know the 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 sw shift was great and then you know it's funny now now uh to go onto youtube you can type in us back in the day there was no youtube you know nobody you couldn't even see it now you can see 20 12 year olds doing it better than me <laughs> it's great dynamite yeah but i i mean i that it's so funny that you mentioned you know doing these moves in order to get street cred because that's that was how i because you know i'm like i said i'm from monroe there weren't really any magicians around none of them were interested in the kind of stuff that i was doing i mean they were doing kid shows um and so my my mindset was like okay if i want to be a legit magic guy 
I've got to know all the Vernon and the Jennings and the Marlowe and Erdnays. I've got to know Erdnays. If I don't know Erdnays, I don't know anything. You know, it was like this kind of, I got to get these fundamentals so that I'm worthy of being talked to and hung out with, basically. It's like, I've got to get the street the, cred. Did you ever seek out John Rockenbomber in uh, New Orleans? I didn't know he was down there at the time. Really? It wasn't until... You know, I didn't know it. And when I lived there in 84, I didn't know it either. It wasn't until I met Steve Reynolds at uh, Lance Pierce's convention, the Pebble Palooza, in which the first one was in Oklahoma City. Uh, that's where I met Steve. I think that's where I met Steve. But he he's the guy that was like, yeah, me and Rocker Bomber down in New Orleans. And, yeah. and so I was like, okay. Yeah. But I didn't know. I didn't know. He must be a great guy to get to know. Rocker Bomber. I feel like I've met almost every magician I've ever wanted to meet and hang out with. And he's one of the guys that... Uh, it's just been never, elusive. Yeah, and he's certainly probably the most prevalent Marlowe disciple, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I guess you could probably put Aronson or Solomon up there too, but he seems to nobody has waved that flag yeah. more than more than Rocket Bomber. Well, and then Steve is one of the biggest Marlowe guys that I know personally that I'm friends with. Is he with. from is he's from Louisiana? He's from Philadelphia, but he he moved to New Orleans uh a decade ago or so and has been down there with Rocker Bomber for a long time nice. that's why he moved down there was to be close oh, really? to Rocker Bomber yeah um, but yeah so that was my that was my thing is I gotta get street cred so I gotta know the the right books I gotta know the right guys I gotta do the right moves so do you do it? I'm gonna put you to the test the SWE bust it out oh, come on bust Fuck it me. out this is <laughs> god damn it Oh man! I haven't touched. Doesn't have to be a good one. Doesn't have to be a good one. There you go. You got it. It was all right. For the first for the first time, I'm holding a deck today. Ah shit! I can get you a better deck if you need one. But no, it's not the deck. It's it's the handler. (laughs) It is the most useless move in Magic, though, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I've never, I've never. I've never done it the due diligence that I would like because it is so useless. But I've always loved the diagonal palm shift. Um, Beautiful, nice. Thank you. All right, we're gonna play a game. Name a move. I'm gonna show you a move, and you have to name it. Uh, Name a move. Um, No, 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 no. I'm gonna show you a move. Oh, and I have to name it. All right. Are we doing this while we're recording? (laughs) No, because because well, here you go. What what card is that? The nine of spades. All right, here we go. That I I know the move. I don't know what it's called or where it's from. Did it flash? Uh, I could hear it. You know, it's funny when you were when you were doing the SW shifts. I was thinking the same thing. In fact, that's if, it, for, yeah. for those of you. In fact, that was one of the things that early on I decided was I got to take that sound out of it. Yeah. So how do you like this? Oh, it's so soft. I love it. Here, we'll put it real close to the mic. I can't even. Oh, you can hear that. You can yeah, hear yeah, the packets yeah. reset. But <laughs> well, that's the old joke: is your pass sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> The only practical thing I ever found to do with it, and mm-hmm. this is a, a move that I, I thought I came up with this as a teenager, but somebody yeah. uh, told me that there may be somebody else who, who also thought of this, but it's a, it's a revelation yeah. using the SWE shift. Ooh, that was sexy. But, I like that a lot. Right, so you're just going like that. Blank, yeah. yeah, that's nice. I like the longitudinal shift. I prefer it to the SWE shift. That's so fun. I tell you what, I don't ever hear people talk this way. Yeah, Give them I, because that... That has that uh, distance discrepancy, you know. So this is better for street performing than this pass 
because you've got the distance. So if you're coming back this way, you're covered from behind. And so people that are farther away, it's a flatter pass. Kenner does the best up SWD, don't you think? Yes. And then... Um, Shane's is pretty good. Shane's is Shane, pretty Shane's good. Shane's is interesting, too. Shane's is pretty good. Uh, yeah. Far out. That's, that's a treat to see you do that. You know, it's... it's uh, you don't... Uh, Rarely, in fact, I think that's what really. Uh, I met Shane at that first uh, MagicCon. Mm-hmm. I didn't know him from Adam, and uh, and we just started getting together and at the bar and and chatting. And next thing you know, we're talking about the SW shift. And I'd never seen anybody do it the way that he does it. He know? does it very slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's great. Um, yeah, I like that move. I just never really uh, did focus, practiced on it. No, practice on it. That's just funny. I have a I have a story that I I hesitated to want to tell actually you know what the hell this is a podcast and this is I, I've listened to your podcast and I know that that uh, uh, people go off on uh, crazy tangents so I'm going to tell you a story about it was sort of in between the being in New York as an 18 year old and then uh, New Orleans at 19 and I guess I moved up to Boston when I was 19 and I I got in trouble with this guy who had sort of convinced me that I could take a postgraduate degree on deception by being a con man with him. <laughs> so he conned you into being a con man? He conned me into being a criminal. <laughs> and for nine months, we were a two-man crime wave on the eastern seaboard. Oh, this is amazing. And I'm sure the statute of limitations is long past, so feel free to let go of well, all the juicy I, secrets. I did my time. <laughs> okay. I ended up getting popped, and mm-hmm. I think I was sentenced to a month in jail, and I only ended up having to do a couple of weeks, but while I was there, I was practicing my SWE shifts in sets of 100. Okay. And I would do 100 SWE shifts, and I would mark it on the wall. Nice. i do another 100 sets, boom, mark it on the wall. Yeah. And a guy comes into my cell, <laughs> and he looks at the wall with all of these marks, and he's like, dude, you've How been long here you a been long here? time. <laughs> Anyway, that was. I'm glad that story ended a lot shorter than a. But you know, he. Uh, I guess it, it was nice, at least at that point in my life, to to get a real strong sense of learning a lesson that taught you right and wrong. Yeah, and you know, but it, I guess in, in a way, it did teach me about deception a little bit. You know, because mm-hmm. he did say, you know, it's one thing to make a a coin disappear, and it's quite another thing to make a room full of. Macintosh has disappeared yeah. in 1984 when they were brand new. So. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, how did that? How did that come about? How did you meet this? I mean, if you, you don't know, want to talk about no, it, no, no, no. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about this story because this is also sort of funny. Is that I was working New Orleans and <clears throat> I'm picking like really weird places to work. Yeah. I'm talking about a <clears throat> a little storefront on Royal at midnight. That you know, that's kind of odd. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not, not a lot of not 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 as much pedestrian traffic as Bourbon Street, but still people wandering around sure. and people coming in. And the nice thing about these little storefronts is they were well lit, mm-hmm. so people could walk up and the table was there and you could just see pretty nicely. And some guy comes up to me and he says, "Yeah, I saw you here a, a year or two ago, you know, doing the cups of balls." And and I'm like, "No, this is my first year here. I've never been here before." And he's like, "No, I'm sure." And over the course of the next few months, I hear that comment over and over again. So I asked Cellini, I'm like, who is the guy that was doing the cups and balls in the storefront windows? And he says, oh, it's this guy. Yeah. 
And I said, well, whatever happened to him? And he says, don't worry about him. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, all right, whatever. So I hear more and more, you know, it's sort of through the grapevine that there was this magician who did beautiful sleight of hand. And, and uh, evidently he had moved up to Boston and he was uh, sort of a career criminal and mm-hmm. uh, a brilliant guy, really a genius fellow and a gifted magician, but... Just wanted to easy. He wanted used to, his powers for evil. He did use his powers for evil, and it was funny when I left New Orleans to go up to. I, actually, I think I went back to Atlanta for a while before going to Boston. But Cellini said, "Whatever you do, don't seek this guy out." And that's the last. That's the worst thing to tell a nineteen-year-old. Don't, <laughs> don't do this. Yeah. Don't don't do this. <laughs> All right, Dad, I'm not going to do this. And, yeah. And I went out. And I I sought him out and. Uh, we had a great deal of fun and got in a great deal of trouble, and uh, I'm, I think I'm a better person for it, at least in yeah. terms of really understanding well, consequences you were, of right and wrong. Yeah, I mean, and you were young enough that it didn't ruin your life, too, which is great. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I was all done with that by the time I was 20, so... Yeah. And then certainly by the time I moved out here to L.A. is... And you had a great SDB shift coming from it. I mean, that's the most important lesson. Is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was a time when I could do 100, or no, I could do 80, 80 SWE shifts in a minute. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm way out of practice. but Ooh, that that was a nice one. Try see see if they're coming up on the mic here. Yeah, you don't want to hear the SW shift. I love that. I, I don't think I'd ever heard that. You could hear what did you say about so your pa- pass sounds great. Your pass sounds great, <laughs> right? Psst, psst, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful move when done beautifully. I think it's a false it's cut. Just, it's nice, you know, when you go to yes, the table. That's my favorite. That's, that's my favorite. That's really the only for. way that you can do it where it's yes. in for something. Actually, you know, it's funny that's my though. Favorite use a for. lot of that sensibility of doing this sort of thing too. You yeah, know, I, it, that bigger motion just. Uh, yeah, it's gorgeous. And then, it's invisible. Uh, and then I love that. Uh, what was that card rise thing that was sort of a, a SW shifty? Faux, yeah, yeah, that was. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, a, yeah. That was Kenner's thing. Yep, yeah, with Brett Wolf's final edition at the end. Yeah, you know, he's worth a mention. This this fellow, he was such a special guy to to. Brett Wolf, yeah, Brett. Have you heard that name? No. You know, I think that Homer, I think Homer would have liked to have mentioned Brett, but it's he he died on us a couple of years ago. Brett, he was uh, uh, dealing with a liver transplant as a forty year old. Wow. And he died, uh, and it it uh, struck all of us really hard. But he he was he was definitely a part of our part of our crew, and he he. Uh, he did a nice SW shift as well, and he, you know, in that shifty thing. And where was that in print? Was that in that Gary Olette book or that uh, the past book or was um, that in, uh... the Kenner's version is in his book with Homer, totally out of control. But I think there's an earlier version that uses. I think the one that's in print. Jesus, I can't remember now. I don't remember the history of it. Anyways, Chris yeah. Kenner, he he he, uh, he is the false one. Yeah. Well, there, there's that one, but yeah. the last one of that yeah. was Brett's, where it comes to the very top. There's this beautiful little move where, where yeah. the card just melts through the top card, and that was, yeah, yeah. That, that was Brett's work. And so, uh, nice to think of Brett fondly and, and to think of how he was important to... With, in fact, I think he was he worked with, uh, with the Copperfield Tour a little bit, and, uh, and uh, Homer and Kenner had taken good care of him, so that's yeah. nice. Wow. I want to I want to get back to um, 
you giving someone the opportunity to perform on your pitch. Because I think a lot of magicians would not are actively against that kind of thing. Like, if I'm performing, you know, get out of my way. This is my time, and this is my deal. I'm on a one-man crusade. <laughs> I love it. You're Don Quixote. <laughs> to pass the sensibility onto the younger generation of pass the deck. Mm-hmm. I'm so sick of people monopolizing in session situations where they think it's appropriate to hold court. Mm-hmm. If you're Juan Tamarez, by all means, you know, he deserves that, you know, but if you're sitting around with guys, it's really important to know when to stop. Yeah. And I've really been on sort of a campaign against insufferability. And magicians are so guilty of just being insufferable. Oh, I love it. And I don't think I knew this until, God, this is, I think it's a decade, maybe 12 years since it was identified to me mm-hmm. by this girl up in Seattle. We used to go swing dancing. And uh, I'm, you know, we're all swing dancing. I'm with my peeps. And then a magician from out of town shows up, Neil Sturton from Scotland. And he, uh, and immediately my shift my focus is shifted to him and card tricks and I'm now I'm ignoring every, the people that I'm with and uh, I think that the girl that I was dancing with we weren't dating or anything but she was uh, sort of got me into swing dancing and and she was hot for Neil a little bit and she oh, wanted yeah. to get to know him a little bit but we were geeking out in <laughs> we were in terms of if there was an insufferability peak level meter we were in the red oh great and she comes over to me and she says do you have to be so insufferable and i didn't i don't think i even really knew what she meant but over the course of the, the next while it really occurred to me how insufferable and insensitive magicians are about you know, even if it's just one magician and a layman, know when to stop. Yeah. It doesn't mean just because they're having fun, do every trick you know. Yeah. And part of this sensibility of allowing somebody to perform in my pitch is saying, it's not all about me. Yeah. There was also a something in the back of my mind that was slightly more devious, but I like to think that it came out of a place of giving and love and saying and because you know what i get to do magic as much as i want you know i live here in la the magic castle is a never-ending magic convention there's whether i'm working there or even if i'm not working there there's places that i can do magic as much as i want yeah uh but for somebody walking down the street and seeing a street magician and enthusiastically saying i'm a magician too yeah and it used to you know i think that we all you know whatever you're going to show me the 21 card trick and they very well may, but that doesn't really matter. It turned it, it turned into something for me where it was, you're a magician? Would you like to do something for the gang if there's a few people here? Or if there's nobody there, would you like me to get a little bit of a crowd and then you can do some magic for everybody? And their eyes just widen and, and they appreciate it so much more than I ever could have imagined. You know, it never occurred to me that that was a good thing to do you know and in fact i think that the thing that was in the back of my mind that was not so you know in the good karma category was there was part of me that was saying let me figure out how to let this guy help me build my crowd yeah and what was always amazing to me was 
I've got an eight-year-old who says he's a magician. Now he's behind my table and he's doing a trick. And I'm watching like a proud parent. Yeah. And sure enough, this eight-year-old is building a crowd. Yeah. And it never ceased to... And you know what? It was sort of humbling in that it's like, all right, I've been doing this all of my life. And I sometimes have trouble getting a crowd. But you put an eight-year-old behind the table and all of a sudden he's getting a crowd. That's really cool. That's really neat. And it also... From the good karma standpoint, it does. You know, the kid gets an experience that I can't even imagine. Yeah. You know that that that's that's a a gift that that you're saying here, and then also like Cellini when he threw that deck at me and he said, "Do something." You're not a magician until you do something. Yeah. And that's one thing. You know, I plan on saying this, but but when I had my magic shop, I realized that there were many layers of magicians. Mm-hmm. You've got your magicians. You've got your hobbyists, but then you also have another layer of what I call closet magicians. And they don't do magic for anybody. They only do magic for their closest family and friends. Yeah. But they don't ever get the experience of doing magic for somebody they don't know. And I really believe that the rubber meets the road when you do your magic for somebody that that you don't know or that 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 you know, magic doesn't exist in a vacuum. Yeah. It doesn't exist in your webcam or your computer showing it on YouTube. Yeah. That's not magic. That's not getting the feedback from the people. And uh, whether the whether the person behind my table is doing a good trick or a lousy trick or, you know, and for a while there, every time somebody did that, I was going to, I took a picture and I would post it on Facebook. And it was like, it always, it just sort of warmed my heart that, yeah. that, uh, that that this is happening and I think it's beautiful and sometimes you know I tell you what more than a few times I've been amazed and impressed that it's like all right dude you got chops yeah you know somebody I didn't even know they just walk up and once again they help me build my crowd or they help be a part of my show and yeah it uh I don't think that the spotlight always has to be about you yeah and I think that there are certain people at the at the castle that that enjoy holding court but don't necessarily have a good sense of when to pass the deck yeah so and you know what this is another t- thing that uh, God I, I haven't thought about this lately but I do believe that sessioning isn't what it used to be what do you mean there just isn't that much of it I mean when was the last time you hung out with your friends got together with a session for four or five hours and jammed out on magic at a convention I mean, I when was the last time? When? Uh, a, a year ago. There you go. Yeah. This is something that used to be before the internet mm-hmm. and before a thousand channels on cable yeah. and before cell phones that people did every Saturday afternoon. Whether it be in the back room of a magic shop or whether it be in Larry Pringle's basement with Sean Eric and Ken Byerly and Paul Swinford mm-hmm. and Larry's wife bringing sandwiches down at noon and yeah. <laughs> Pepsi Colas and and uh, I think that, that and you know what the thing that, that you don't get in the vacuum of YouTube is the immediate feedback of knowing when you flash yeah and Sean and I were just brutal with each other <laughs> Sure. In fact, when we would session, we gave each other full authority to just say, flash, yeah. flash, flash like hell. Mm-hmm. While we're doing the routine, we're getting immediate feedback of when we're flashing. 
oh, maybe it would be better if you just turn your wrist slightly. That Wow, that just cleaned it up. Yeah. And that there's this, you know, it just seems to be, you know, I think here in L.A. we're lucky. There's a lot of sessioning going on. In fact, yeah. I, I'm, I'm in sort of in the habit of just sometimes saying, hey, having a little get-together, you know, anyone want to come over, come over. I think the last one was a week or so ago when Michael Kaminskis was working the, the close-up room at the castle, and uh, he's got uh, some brand new uh, cups and balls that uh, are coming out, uh, the Michael Kaminskis cups. You should check them out. And so I knew he was coming, yeah. but I didn't know that after reading the, uh, the, the, the Facebook post that Eric Jones would show up. And that a fellow named Stephen Himmel would show up, and that another street performer friend of mine, Makoto, would show up, and uh, there was a, a, a French Italian cat that was also working the castle. He ended up uh, showing up, and I think that that it's really important to have a group of friends that you can jam with on a regular basis. Yeah. If you want to move your magic forward, you have to have the immediate feedback of a set of eyes, and if you don't have that opportunity. At a minimum, you should be working with your camera, you know, your video camera. It's never been easier to practice yeah. with, uh, with uh, either, you know, I'm not that, that keen on I very rarely shoot with my webcam on my, on my computer. Yeah. But, uh, you know, using a GoPro or using the, uh, the Canon or most recently, I just got the, uh, the iPhone 7 Plus. Because of, in fact, you know, it's funny. I've been shooting video at the, at the, at the castle for... God, I think I got my first camera in like 87, my first video camera. It was a giant thing shot on a format called Super VHS. <laughs> I'm sure you've never heard of but uh, Shooting in show light situations can be tricky with normal cameras. You've got tungsten lighting. You've got, nowadays, you've got LED lighting. Mm-hmm. And in some of the showrooms, you've got a combination of these lightings that I said to a friend of mine recently I'm like why is it that a camera phone can take a better video in 1080p than my Canon Rebel T5i you know I don't understand how that can be and the guy said well the algorithms and the cameras are more sophisticated than in the lower level DSLRs yeah but I'm finding that these camera phones are very sophisticated, and I'm going to be working the WC Fields bar uh, in a week or two, and I plan on shooting all on. Well, the- that sucker will shoot in 4K. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, it's, you know what? The GoPro amazing. will shoot in 4K too, but it's not processing the the LED lighting as well. Yeah, you know, it's just it's it's not looking. Yeah, you know, it's not looking so. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you don't have a peer group that you can hang out with regularly to get the feedback, you need to get the feedback from your 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 camera phone yeah. or a video camera, and don't just set up the the camera straight on or at a good angle. Yeah, put that camera at your worst angle. You know, because yeah, that, yeah. and that's the one thing about street performing that really helps you work on that stuff is when you are performing surrounded. It's got to look good from all angles. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah. in terms of choosing the slides that you do, or in terms of you know, it's like I'm I'm very partial to the uh, spread pass. I'm not a I love a classic it. One of my pass favorite moves. But as you know, you wouldn't necessarily do a spread pass facing the person. Yeah. So it's a sensibility of having the person on your left hand side here. You pick the card because now I'm going to do it with all this cover for everybody on my right hand side. Yeah. As I'm pivoting and facing left. Yeah, yeah. That you can cover cover all of that. Yeah. So. Um, you're kind of answering a question that I've been asking a lot of my guests. 
uh, which is for people because I'm I'm having this trouble. I'm getting the itch to perform again, but it's been so long that I don't feel comfortable just you know going to a club or to a venue and being like, hey, I want to do some work here. So where where can I go to be bad? You know, to work on the material. The, the uh, it's funny that you asked that question because I answered that question in my street performing class, which is the streets. The streets are the best place these days to go out and be able to do magic. I can't say that it's going to be as lucrative as it used to, but if that's not the goal, yeah. if the goal isn't to go out there and make a lot of money, yeah. if the goal is to go out there and tune up your chops, you can just put that on the floor if you want there. Uh, the streets are a great place, and certainly you can work a lot of different type of material on the streets. You can work the most close-up intimate stuff. You can build a bigger perimeter, and you can do parlor stuff, sort of stuff. You know, depending on where you are, you could, you know, I think I saw somebody do a metamorphosis out on uh, Venice Beach one day. Wow. And, you know, so the streets are, are always there, and that's one of the things. If they're not that great for making great money these days, they're certainly there as a way of perpetuating your brand and, and uh you know, I see all sorts of guys out there these days with banners with their websites and their Instagram feeds and their, you know, very you know, variety of social media call to action on their on their signage. Yeah. Uh, but that's and then certainly, uh, if you're thinking about moving here, the castle is a great place, you know. Sure. The the uh, museum and for those of you who are around the country and may not know this, the Magic Castle, it truly is a non-stop magic convention. Yeah. Seven days a week, every week of the year, it just rocks out. And the beautiful thing about the Magic Castle is that we have, not only are there the paid performers who people go to see, but there are areas where members and even friends of members, it's appropriate for them to do a little set. They have an area called the museum. and then Which was have, just re, yep, revitalized, yep, and just it's a beautiful there. room now. Yep. It's one of the better rooms in the castle. It really is. In fact, they're. they're, uh, I don't know if you know this, but they're Joe Furlow, our uh, our uh, general manager, who's just doing a spot on job these days. uh, He brought me into some meetings where we we decided to to revamp the sound and lighting in the Peller and the and the W C Fields Theater first, or the the W C Fields Bar. Mm -hmm. So. We've redone the lighting and sound in the inner circle, which is that area in the lower level, the, the Peller and the, the WC. And now they've redone the museum. But this is this is just the first phase of every performance venue in the place going. So they're going to do the close-up room. They're going to do the palace. They're going to do the parlor. And we're going to get a totally uh, sort of, you know, bring it up to date in terms right. of lighting and sound. So 21st century magic castle. Very, very exciting. But the room that you just touted is the one of the best rooms in the place. Is is a It's a common area room where, in fact, they've got on Thursday through Sundays, they've got something called the J. Hosi Posse. Um, and they have sort of some guys coordinating. You can go down there and do an 18 to 20 minute set. And the nice thing about these rooms is they're sort of overflow rooms. Mm-hmm. So they've only, you know, the close-up room only seats 20 people or maybe 23 with standing room. Yeah. Uh, 
if you know it's hard to get into that show in fact i'm going up there tonight and it, it's going you know luckily i know the performer and i'm hoping to get a uh, a VIP seating, but sure. but people get shut out of that show frequently. So yeah. a lot of times they'll say, "Well, just go down there." There's a guy doing magic down there, and there's two venues down there. Yeah. So having that opportunity to go out and uh, you know to to road test your stuff and get it good, and this is also how they grow people who are associate members into magician members too. Yeah, it's really nice. Now I have a, a I don't know if it's moral or ethical or whatever. But I, I, I'm struggling with like understanding and appreciating everything that you just said about people working on their shit at the castle. But the lay people that come to the Magic Castle, the premier magic club in the world, you know, the best, the epitome of what magic can be in person, go in and they don't know that the people in the castle aren't being paid to perform there. And so they go in and they probably see bad magic. And they think this is what this is. Well, you know, how do we? What do we do about that? How do I gotta, we do about all that? I can say is this, and this is sort of off the top of my head. Because we're in LA, and because we're at the Magic Castle, the worst of what you're going to see ain't too bad. Rarely have I ever seen anybody eat it down there in the museum. Rarely well, have I seen people that have no skill or talent down there yeah doing their stuff and you know what i think the other thing too is they're sort of set up in that because i know that there have been times where i have walked down there mm-hmm. saw a performer said this isn't really my cup of tea and just kept walking yeah the way it's set up down there is that it's like a street show yeah you're not sure. liking what you're seeing but you, you know that that is a good question i don't know if it's ever really identified as to who is who is what is a the paid performer room. You know, I think, ultimately, though, I think that when they give out the show schedules at the host stand when you walk in, these are your your rooms of, sure. of your featured performers. Yeah. If you happen to see magic in other parts of the club, yeah. and typically, you know, I don't wear one of the pins, but, you know, you can identify the castle members as having those pins on. Yeah. Uh, that's one way. That's just been... I, I I mean, that's... Let me ask you this. Yeah. Have you seen some shitty acts down there? Yeah. Be honest. Yeah, really yeah, honest. I have. Yeah. Who were they? No kidding. <laughs> I'll just show. I'll tell you. No. Uh, <laughs> but I did, and I think... I believe I've told this story on the podcast before, but I, I was with two of my friends, and they're both magicians, and we were walking around. I think we had just seen Mike in the bar, who is always phenomenal. And he's sandwiched between these two rooms. He's sandwiched that I'm, that I'm between these about. two rooms. So this is an interesting... An interesting thing. So he's he's you know the most consistent, amazing performer, top notch, and, and a great podcast too, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, he was he's amazing. Um, huge fan. I am of him, not him. Me too. Me. me too. Um, but so we had just got done seeing Mike, and we were uh, you know passing through the museum to go back up to the main bar, and there's a guy sort of building a crowd. Hey, I'm about to start a show. You guys come in and sit down. And I was like, we're not really doing anything. We missed the show upstairs. We may as well just sit down and see what's what's going to happen. And it sucked. And it was awful. And his sleight of hand was fine. His his technique was fine. But his delivery and presentation was subpar. His delivery, his presentation, his timing, everything but his technique was awful. Uh... 
what do you think would help solve that problem then do you think that that if it was if do you think that if the people knew that they were coming into an area that was experimental or that these were not the paid performers that that would that would make a difference that 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 would be a beneficial thing i think that would be beneficial for the people that are sitting here watching the show going this is part of the magic castle i you know it's an exclusive club i got in here this guy's a member he must be worth something but i'm seeing this act and it's awful yeah, I don't know how he's doing the tricks, but I'm not enjoying it either. Yeah. Well, there are no shortage of shooting magicians, that is for sure. Yeah. So, so my only, so I, you know, I don't mind that people work out their material at the castle. I mind that it's not clear that that's what they're doing. Interesting. So, it, so, and that's just a personal thing. It may yeah, be one yeah, of those I'll things you, you can't I, you know enforce. What, I feel like I'm plugged into to the castle enough to to talk to the general manager about this and yeah. to say. You know, this is because you know what this is. This is the first I've heard of that, but it make it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right that 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 this could be an interesting. You know, I don't know whether signage would help it. Or I don't know if it's signage as much as much as it's just like an unwritten policy that if you're gonna do an act in one of those rooms, you no 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 not it's not about that. It's just that you say like I know that personally, if I was going to work out some material in that room. I would introduce myself as being, I, I'm not paid to be here, I'm just working on some stuff, I'd love to show you some magic that you know I'm interested in and that I really want you to enjoy and I'm going to try and build this atmosphere and blah 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 blah. So personally, I would let the people know yeah, that, that I'm makes perfect sense, doing huh? my best but I'm not being paid to be here. And that's that's the line where people aren't necessarily well, that's making a great, it that's clear. A great, uh that's a great note, and I will. Uh, I'll definitely pass it up to Chase. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't mean for this to no, be what you know, it is. You know what? I tell you what. The one thing about because I love the castle. The so one much. thing about the castle is that they're really interested in making it the best experience for everybody, yeah. and to pass this along. Because you know what? Ultimately, if I pass it along. I have no real vested interest in sure. what happens to the to it. They yeah, either, yeah. they either take note or they don't. But certainly, yeah. hearing it from you, I get it. Yeah, I understand that, and uh, yeah, and I think that, that that's a a good thing because I think that we do encourage our members to use that space to to absolutely put stuff together. Yes, and, yeah. You know, I, I guess I kind of it's funny. I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but this is. My thirtieth year of working at the Magic Castle. Wow! How old are you? I am twenty-three. <laughs> Amazing! <laughs> I don't even feel like I'm that old. You know, I don't. I don't. How can I have been working at the Magic Castle for thirty years? It yeah. doesn't seem possible. That's amazing. Uh, but yeah, that's that. Uh, we'll definitely. Uh, well, so that that's you know. So we talk about places that 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 you can be bad. Yeah. And and now that you say now that you say it that way, the the you know the museum and the hat and hair are not a place to be bad. You're right. You're in a premier venue in the country, yeah. in, the, in world, the world, yeah. in the world. So, but I will like like I said earlier, even the shitty magicians in this town are pretty good. Yeah, you know there sure. are more magicians per square foot in L.A. than any other city in the world. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Probably pretty sure. And that's one of the reasons why for the last decade I've really enjoyed living in LA but not interfacing with that yeah I wasn't competing with anybody yeah yeah I wasn't competing for a bar mitzvah or a trade show or a private party yeah. I just didn't even give a shit I didn't care whether I booked a gig or not yeah yeah and now that now that I'm being lumped into this pool doing you know 
old folk. I did two old folks home shows in the last month. Yeah. In fact, explain this. To, well, I guess I, I I know the answer, but this is sort of it weirded me out a little. Yeah. I do an old folks home show uh-huh. three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Yeah. I do the show. The money to me is subpar. Sure. One hundred seventy-five bucks. Okay. What the hell? Yeah. Tuesday afternoon at one. I'm not doing anything. It's a half an hour away from my house. Why not? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to make a living, so I go and do the gig, and it. I don't want to say it devastates me emotionally, but there was <laughs> some emotional weight. Yeah. Attached to what happened during the show, and this is it's funny. You asked me what happened. Why are you thinking about your third act? What is this? What is, you know? Yeah. Confronting mortality, yeah. In the way that you do when you do an old folks home, where people are wheeled in in their wheelchairs, yeah, and some are conscious and some are unconscious, and some people have their eyes open and they're not there, and some people have their eyes open and they are there, and you really can't tell the difference. And I'm doing my show, and you know, I'm, I, I you know, I do my thing. I, you know, great. Every yeah. So I leave, I, you know, I get paid, and I get a call two weeks later from the booker, and she's like, we'd like to, we'd like to book you again next week. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I, I was confused. I was, I'm like, all right, do you have a different, is it for the same people? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know that it will largely be the, uh, the, the same, same performance. Yeah. And she's like, yeah. They, they loved you. <laughs> they loved. And then it occurred to me that, you know, with dementia and Alzheimer's, if I went back, it very well may be the first time they ever saw it. Yeah. And, but, I don't know You why. got face-to-face with it, and now you're... It's yeah, and, and I did it again. And it, it was really funny. The second one that I did, I decided to, to... I made a Facebook post about this the other day. And you know what? It's so funny with Facebook and social media that you never know what will resonate with people. Mm-hmm. You never know what will get you likes and comments. And you just throw all this shit up against the wall and maybe it lands and maybe it doesn't. But I couldn't believe that I got 120 likes and about 40 comments yeah. on the story that I'm about to tell you, which was, so I get the repeat gig. Yeah. And I decide to treat it a little differently this time. Now at least I know. And I hadn't done one of these in years. I hadn't done an old folks home in probably 25 years. Yeah. And it's funny. I remember I used to, my first my first wife, her mother was involved with the VA. So I would go and do these uh, VA hospital gigs. Yeah. And I remember having some fun with doing some like cut and restored IVs, <laughs> you know, with using a, a, yeah, a yeah. loop of IV and, that, sure. and, and doing that. And and just treating it a little differently. So I think when I went and I did the first one, I was going in there and doing my act. Yeah, now right. that I know what I'm dealing with again, I'm going to treat it like a kid show. Yeah. And I decided to do the temple screen. Do you know what this is? I don't know. God, it's uh, I think it's in the garage. I certainly wouldn't keep it in the inner sanctum here in my office. <laughs> but it's a uh, God. I think it was an old UF Grant trick. Maybe uh, uh, you had this three panels. It was basically a production item, like a square okay. circle. But it, sure. three panel screen. You show it. It's got Oriental writing on one side. You turn it over. It's got Buddhas on the other side. You fold it into a triangle, and you produce scarves out of it. And you can produce endless amounts of bullshit. Yeah. So it's not a trick that 
I like. It's not a trick that resonates with me. It's, you know, I happen to, having gone to Magic Shop and having, you know, been in this my whole life, I happen to have one in the garage and have enough scarves to throw in it. And so I decided to do a medley of magic to music. And it was very important for me to pick a song that would resonate with that age group. Yeah. And I love Glenn Miller's Moonlight Serenade. You don't know if you do know that one. Yeah, Glenn Miller is a just yeah. and you know I think of Glenn Miller as sort of like you know World War Two ish, mm-hmm. uh, swing dancing that and big band this, stuff. Yeah, story. it's just yeah. just beautiful music. So I go into this routine and uh, and I've got different things loaded into the uh, into the temple screen. So I've got I pull out a few scarves and I and I just see they're like little kids these 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 uh, these old folks, and then I decide to do the serpent silk. You know that with the mm-hmm. untying knot. You know you tie the scarf and the, the knot, and it goes up. And uh, oh yeah, okay, sure. And uh, and so that was in the temple screen. And then I I finally after producing all these scarves, and I loved what one of the people said. I could audibly hear one of these ladies saying, "So many, <laughs> <laughs> so many." It just cracked me up. It's like they're scarves yeah. you know you could put a thousand scarves in a crown royal bag yeah yeah I probably have uh, so producing and then I finally pull out a, a pair of scissors and a rope and I finish up with the, the cut and restored rope which you know to me it's all filler material you know this isn't part of my my regular stick but sure. uh, I was just trying to treat it differently and trying to custom tailor the show to the audience and, and it, it turned out well and then uh and then, strangely enough, the next next day, uh, or a couple of days later, I get this email, and there's some some people in town that know that I'm struggling and know that I'm trying to find my own. And there's a fellow in town named Steve Spill, mm-hmm. and he's got Magicopolis, and he's going on 20 years with an illusion show in Santa Monica, and he's been sort of throwing me some leads, mm-hmm. and it's been mind-boggling to me how I have not been able to convert some of these leads into actual bookings based on price. Mm -hmm. And trust me, I'm not, you know, I've got friends of mine that charge five to seven thousand dollars to go do a show. Yeah. And I'm having trouble booking a private party for four hundred dollars. Yeah. You know, for a half an hour, 40 minute show. And, and so, I love that he's sending me these leads. I'm a little frustrated that I'm unable to that that I'm having trouble converting the leads into into actual bookings. But one of the leads was a booker who does only old folks homes, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, all right, if this is what my third act looks like, I'm ready to. I'm ready it's to a little work. too on the nose. I'm ready to work for FedEx, but you know what? Still, the money is better than real world money. You know, it's like you know, even at a, even at. 175 bucks for 45 minutes you know it's that's not great money that's in fact that's shitty money for to 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 go out and perform magic for but are you trying to pay your bills are you trying to pay your child support are you trying to pay your your mortgage are you trying and then even for the younger guys out there that are that are single and 19 and 20 and living in you know living in mid-america in reasonably placed places once again i can only emphasize that you're not young forever and that you may or may not get married, and you may or may not have kids, and you may or may not buy a house, but in terms of your long-term thinking, I don't believe there's any magic book out there that says that. Yeah. You know, and I think that it's important to say, wow, you know. And then you look at my friend Brett Wolf, dead at 40, you know. I mean, that that broke our hearts. That just crushed us 
to find somebody in our own peer group who is younger than me yeah and and to try to say you know all right magic is great magic you know doing magic for a living is great doing magic for a hobby is a great but but is it something that can sustain you into that and this has nothing to do with magic but i will say that confronting that mortality of working at the old folks home i don't know about you but my wife and i have had discussions about quality of life and i don't want to live that way yeah i don't yeah you know if i I've had conversations with my parents about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how far... And what is their thoughts on it? What is, my dad says, smother with, smother with, smother me with a pillow or shoot me in the face and feed me to a shark. That's my, those are my dad's words. Uh, yeah. And, and, but at what point? You know, it's like... At exactly. What, at what point? You know, I got a feeling that yeah. when your quality of life is reduced to being wheeled into a room to watch me... <laughs> <laughs> call it over. <laughs> Game over. Yeah. I, I, it's, you know, it's, it's the hardest question that you can ask. Yeah, and these are thoughts, you know, you know, I, I, you know. what did you say, you're 27? 23. 23. Yeah. You know, these are not thoughts of a 23-year-old, I would, yeah. I would imagine, but I guess the fact that you had the conversation with your father does bring it into some sort of reality, you know, yeah. that, that it's like, wow, life is, you know, life yeah. is fleeting. Life yeah. is fleeting. Live your life to the fullest do everything you want to do. Try to make a living. Try to save some money. Plan for the future. And even as a professional magician, there are slow times of the year, you know? Try to figure that out. Sure. Well, do you want to talk about your obsession? Uh, we could talk about my cup obsession. You know? <laughs> Hi, I my would name like is to. Tom, and I'm a cupaholic. Cupaholic. I love the cups and balls. God, I love. I it. do too. You know, I I can only tell you that, and you've seen a lot of sets of cups in my home. Yeah, uh, a few. <laughs> I was lucky enough to buy the majority of these cups before cups were collectible. Really? Yeah, it's only within the last twenty years that cups became a thing. And you know what? Not to toot my own horn, which I very rarely do but I do believe that the Phoenix Cups sort of started that trend mm-hmm. and they started a trend with the, uh, a segment of magic that didn't used to be there which was cup collectors or I don't even think you know I, I, I had to do you know Ken Klosterman? Do you know that name? I know the name. I, I've never met him. He's one of the premier magic collectors in the in the world. He owns uh, Robert Houdin's Light and Heavy Chest, and uh, he collects not only mag- not just magic, but historically significant magic. And as a twelve year old, he sort of gave me a sensibility mm-hmm. of of collecting magic and the magic history. And and in fact, I have. Well, the first collector's piece of magic I ever bought was from Ken, and I think I was about 12 years old. You've heard of Thayer? Yes. This is a Thayer Sure Shot die box that uh, I bought from Ken Klosterman when I was about 12 or 13 years old. Wow. And uh, kind of cool, huh? It is cool. And I wow. don't know if you know this. Did you know that Thayer was turned into Owen's magic, right? I didn't know that. 
Yeah, and that Owen magic is still exists in Azusa. Which Where's is that? What is it's forty five minutes out of L.A. Really? And that you can go there, and that they've been around. That they've been making. They've made illusions for Houdini. They made magic, but uh, anyways, this early introduction into the idea of collecting magic was very appealing to me as a twelve or thirteen year old. Now. As a 15-year-old, I had that job making some money at the the amusement park, and that lasted a couple of years, and I had some money to spend, and I would go to the Magi Fest, and I would see uh, Bob Little. Bob Little, the whiz, the best there is. And he would sell Carl Bremmett and Son, and he had these brass items that that were nice. They were sort of, you know, they were five and ten dollars. You know, you could still buy them. Back then, and I still have these pieces in in my display cases here, and uh, then getting into the cups and balls, and then meeting Cellini, and then really f- finding you know for some reason the cups and balls just resonating with my heart and soul that this is a trick that becomes a canvas for your personality, and it involves almost every principle of magic: vanishes mm-hmm. and appearances, and transpositions, and penetrations, and. Uh, so I started collecting cups at an early age, and there were some antique magic dealers that were in Cincinnati, a fellow named Kena Thompson. He still has a business. He does some online auctions, as well as uh, Ron Alessi. Mm-hmm. He does some ma- magic. And then there was a fellow, uh, Mario Carandi, out of New York City. And I let these guys know early on, I'll buy any cup you have. I don't care whether it's beat up. I don't care if there's only two in the set. And so... A lot of the cups that you see in this collection are from that era. And then I used the Charlie Miller cups, which this is kind of a fun story, where Jay Marshall was of Magic Inc. He mm-hmm. was manufacturing the Charlie Miller cups. Uh, which, by the way, evidently Charlie Miller had very little to do with them. It was sort of just, we want to put a name to them yeah. that, that people will recognize. But they uh, they were sort of a Ross Bertram style cup, mm-hmm. Charlie Miller cup, and we would go through a set of those every year. I showed you this set of uh, Cellini's cups, and we would yeah. mutilate these cups. They are just beat to hell. Yeah, beat to hell. And we would this this is about I would roughly say a year's work. That's all you could do that to a set of cups in a year. And Cellini taught me a fun thing to do, where he would say to somebody who was maybe interested in cups. And they, they would have a brand new set of Charlie Millers, and he would say, hey, would you trade me this beat-to-shit set of cups for your brand new set? Yeah. And who wouldn't? Would yeah. you trade somebody a new set of your cups for that beat-up set? Of course. Hell yeah, you would. And so we would do this regularly. We would trade off our sets for new sets, and then we would beat them. And then in 1998, I had the opportunity to go to, to China to go on a manufacturing spree and and I had no idea what I wanted to manufacture I brought over probably 50 60 different ideas and I went to what was it 11 cities in 21 days and visited about 25 different manufacturing uh, facilities uh, factories and ended up doing the Phoenix Cups where we're basically a knockoff of of the the Charlie Miller Cups in fact this is sort of a sub-story within a sub-story <laughs> uh, where I the Jay Marshall had run out of the the Charlie Miller Cup so I met with him and asked him if I could go to China and manufacture these cups at a cost-efficient price and sell them to you would you be interested in continuing to sell Charlie Miller Cups to the masses 
And he said, yes. So I go over there and I go through six phases of product modification and and finally I have a set and I bring him over and I show him to him. I think I was working a an SAM convention in Cincinnati, it was a national and and I was very excited because I'd come over, I'd cut the deal and I I showed him the cups and I said, What do you think? And he said, You knocked off my cup. He didn't even remember that he had given me permission <laughs> yeah. to to because uh, he said, "Yeah, if you can make them, I'd be interested in that." Yeah, yeah. But uh, but he said, "No, I don't. I don't have any interest in those." So oh, now wow. I'm sitting on a thousand sets of cups. Yeah. And I'm like, "Well, how do I market them? So how do I?" So I decided, you know, I had this sort of dream of creating. A, you ever heard of the Franklin Mint? Yes. You know, they used to be. Uh, they'd make plates and commemorative items, and I thought it'd be fun to have a company called the T Frank Mint. And so the, this was going to be the first product of the T. Frank Mint, which was a, a, a limited edition set of cups with a wand and a, you know, you got the balls and you got the box and you got the certificate of authenticity and, and all of that. And it was about the same time that, you know, shortly after that, Johnson Cups put out their beautiful CNC cups, which are the top cups in that, uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, that case there. And then after that, became a wave of what I like to call gourmet cups. Yeah. And we had the Jim Sisti cups and the Mike Kaminskis cups first came out, you know, 20 years ago. This was 1998 when I put mine out. And then, and then, I don't know if you know about, uh, you know, Rings and Things used to be a company, not just for cups, but I mean, they were the, when I was growing up in the late 70s, they were the industry standard for linking rings, cups and balls, dove pans. You know, they were sort of like your aluminum and metal company. Yeah. And now it brings in things too. Yeah. Oh my God, they've just taken it. I mean, there's they have sort of systematically decided to reproduce every cup ever made. Yeah. So they've gone, and they, in fact, they even called me up and they said we'd like to re- we'd like to redo your Phoenix cups. And I'm like, I don't know why you're calling me. I I uh. I just knocked off the Charlie Miller cups, and they're like, "Well, we want to use the Phoenix name." Yeah. So when they wanted to do that, I said, "Well, the only way that I would approve that is if you fix every problem that anyone ever complained to me about about the Phoenix cups." Yeah. Of which there were many. <coughs> like what? Well, and these are Charlie Miller cups here. You know, yeah. The beat up Cellini ones was the. The middle bead was a little low, uh-huh. which basically minimized your attic space. Yeah, meaning that you, if you put a one-inch ball up there yeah. and you set the cup on top, there would be some wobble. Yeah. Right. Now the funny thing with me is, and there's just a sort of there's a dual layer of cup people. There's people that do the cups and balls. Yeah. And then there's another layer of people that are what I call cup snobs. Yeah. And they don't. Even, they may not even do the cups, but they're into the aesthetic perfection of a set of cups. So yeah. Attic space now really important. Yeah. Rolled lips. Yeah. This you know I've got a I've got 150 years of cups in this room, and very few of them. That was a really big idea of these rolled edges. Now for a Charlie Miller set of cups, that's a pretty tight roll. It is. Uh, these are the Phoenix cups here, and you can see not so tight. It's a pretty loose roll, yeah. Yeah. Does that matter to you? No. And I, I even asked some collectors, I'm like, why does that matter? 
And a guy said to me, well, dust can get in there. Or just a it's a cosmetic difference. So there became this new breed of cup snob. Yeah. And the cup, you know, we have, there has never been a better time in history to buy cups. And there has never been a better company to buy cups from than Rings and Things 2. The, their quality of their work is top notch under anybody's standards. Mm -hmm. And they have reproduced the entire Paul Fox line. They have reproduced the Jim Sisti line. They have what they call the Phoenix 2 cups now, which basically are even better than the Charlie Miller cups because they they took it. Now, the Ross Bertram cups, they didn't have such a problem because they were they were just a better quality cup. They had better rolled edges. They had a, a little higher bead in the middle. And, uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question about how I got fascinated with cups, what, but, but just, this is, yeah. this you know, that's sort of the... That's sort of the chronolo uh, chronology of, of, of that. So I, I got interested in cups at a very early age. I like to feel like I had something to do with the resurgence of a new layer of cups. And yeah. the, the, the funny thing was... You created the cup snob when you numbered your cups. Oh, you know, I also <laughs> created the cup critic, too. Yeah. Because what I did when I went to China and I said can you reproduce this cup is I reproduced every flaw that that cup had yeah so the rolled edges weren't that tight the bead was a little low but you know what the funny thing is is I use my cups yeah daily and they don't bother me you yeah. know if the cup wobbles a little bit that's you know the rolled edge I've never had anybody watch the final loads come out of the cup and say wow that would have been a great trick if their edges were rolled a little tighter yeah you know, but I, you know, and you know, one of the things that has been fascinating me more recently, and this is this is a question that, uh, man, I, I think I'm getting ready to do something that I never wanted to do, which was put out a cup and ball DVD. Yeah, and the reason I never wanted to do it was, far smarter and better people have done it already. Yeah, the Mike Amar double DVD set on the complete cups and balls is great. Daryl's is great, you know. I mean, you look at Tommy Wonders. What am I going to say that's better than that? But I have found that that, and I just recently, for the last two years, got to present at Magic Live mm -hmm. on the cups, yeah. which was very flattering, and I was honored to 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 be in the company of the people in the room that I was in. But I'm finding that people are interested in what I have to say and what I what I think about the cups and what kind of routine I do. So I'm I'm. Uh, I think that uh, I'm going to have that DVD ready for the lecture tour uh, on the cups and balls. But the one thing that, that is interesting to me is that why has the cups endured mm -hmm. through hundreds of years of... And what, what boggles my mind is the cups have been represented in artwork from the 1400s on yeah in fact I have a book here on my shelf if I can get it that is I think there's only 250 of these books but it's called The Oldest Deception and look at some of these diagrams in here and look at the cup and ball worker down there yeah and this is what's the date on that 14 something 1404 1404 What's interesting is in this book called The Oldest Deception, yeah. they show you again and again and again the cup and ball worker being depicted in paintings and artwork. 
And what I've begun to ask myself recently is, why? Why is this guy in this picture, in this painting, in this book? And then also to show you something else interesting, I know your listeners can't hear this, but I've been lucky enough to get some original artwork. Check this out. Wow, this is gorgeous. 1849. Holy shit. Hand colored. That's an original. This is amazing. And that is a political satire cartoon of a French politician being thrown out of a window by some police wearing the, how do you say it, the pouch? The Jubissier. Yeah. Yeah. With his cups and his balls and his wand. His wand. And here's another one from the 1850s. And what is... What I'm trying to just understand is... Why is this the magician? What makes it so iconic through hundreds of years of culture and society crossing borders and countries and oceans that this trick resonates? Do you think it is that every magical effect is wrapped up in the cups and balls routine? You know, I asked a guy recently, and it was, I can't remember his name, but it was during that session where Mike Kaminskis was here, and he actually read, he's a French dude, and he read all that text down there at the bottom. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, <laughs> he said, the magician as an icon was a thief. Yeah. And so that when you see this image reproduced in these books that he's representing sort of this counterculture uh, swindler sort of three-card money character on the street and just as much as that was a part of the texture of new york city going on that uh that 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 resonates within history and publications enough to create that character but there's enough of it that doesn't lend to that you know i think there's enough cup and ball artwork and certainly if you had an opportunity to buy the bob reed uh, book which came out a few years ago that was his basically his cup and ball art collection mm-hmm. which were hundreds of paintings watercolors woodcuts of you know spanning hundreds of years of of cup and ball artwork and it's just you know it's it's to me it's fascinating and like you said it does encompass all that magic and it does encompass you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a beautiful effect. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I those those illustrations in that book. I mean, I'm not going back to the 1420s. 14, yeah, 1404, 1420, 1460. And that predates the printing press by what 80 years, maybe? I don't know when the printing press had to come into play. What in the mid 1400s, early 1500s? Yeah, I'm. A, I feel bad for not remembering because it was. The it's, whole it's around that time period. I, I remember that uh, you know that, that uh, Discovery Witchcraft was the first. Yeah. Uh, English spoken language book that had yeah, some yeah. of that in there, but uh, and that was I think in what 1520 or 1540, but but yeah. So that's sort of my my love of the cups and balls is just all of that. It, yeah. It's just all, and then you know, having a fellow uh, this Larry Pringle, mm-hmm. you know Larry Pringle introduced Sean Eric and myself to the cups and balls at an early age. Yeah. And, you know, just uh, having taught it recently, it all comes down to the fake pass. You yeah. know, it all comes down to that. What you know, putting a ball in one hand and making it vanish or making it disappear or putting it under a cup and having it reappear or somewhere else. You know, there's there's so much of the basis of sleight of hand and misdirection 
and presentation and entertainment. You know, that's one of the things that I guess this could be said about any trick, but I do believe that the cups and balls is really it's a canvas for your personality and for your point of view and for whatever it is that you want to say. Whether you want to say that in a funny way or whether you want to say it in a serious way or whether you want to personalize it like Paul Gertner does and say that he's from Pittsburgh and he comes from a steel town and he's going to use steel balls or whether you're a street performer and you're out on the street and you've got a, you know, it's just a, it's a great trick and I think that it's amazing to me how well it translates from close up to stage. Yeah. You know, I was blown away when I started working the comedy clubs and, you know, where I was used to doing the cups and balls for 30, 40 people on the street. Now I'm doing it for 300 people in a comedy club and uh, you just use bigger cups and bigger balls and it's the same trick. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, it's one of my, I mean, it's easily one of my favorite effects. How do you feel about all of the flashy moves? that can be associated with the cups of balls are you kind of a purist because I've never seen you do the routine I know I know you for it but I've never actually seen you do the cups you know I think that if you know it's funny when you say flashy moves with the cups and balls it's like I'm not even sure what you're talking about. I'm talking about wand spins and, you know, cup penetrations and, you know, the triangular You know, I think that if it, if it fits with what you're doing and, and uh, the audience is buying it, yeah. knock yourself out. In fact, it was funny with that. I thought I knew a lot about the cups and balls, but at that session where Eric Jones showed up, uh, I learned three new moves. <laughs> I learned one move from uh, from uh, Eric, one move from Steven, and one move from Mike. And uh, I'll sort of, I don't know whether makes sense to describe these on a podcast but uh they uh one was a do you know that galloping post move where it's basically you've got two cups sta- you've got a ball on top of the cup and you cover it up and you're going to scoop it off onto the ground uh, yeah. onto the table yeah, yeah uh eric was doing that in reverse where he was going he had a ball in the cup and basically hopping it up on top of the cup i'd never seen anything like that wow. And then Stephen had a great one where he was rolling the ball into the cup mm-hmm. to, to handle it. And then Mike had another one where it was a, a Charlie Miller sequence where instead of going into the hand, it goes behind the cup. And, you know, I don't know. It's just there's so much beauty and so much... Uh, there's n- an endless amount of options that you can do with it. So it's a huge cup fan. And, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, in terms of loading, you can load out of your pockets, you can load out of a pouch, you can load out of your lap, you can load out of... You know, so you're just kind of whatever, make it your own, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never tire of seeing the cups, and then, you know, even seeing. God, I had the honor of watching a Spanish magician, people. I think mm-hmm. you did one. I did a podcast with him as well. Yeah, uh, he does just a beautiful little chop cup routine it's with gorgeous. three balls that that is unlike anything I ever saw. Yeah. I mean it, it doesn't look like a chop cup routine. It doesn't look like the cups and balls. It looks he has created something totally new and unique using the cups and balls as the framework. Yeah. You know, all of those moves and all of that, all of that sensibility. And mm. it, it's just goes to show you that even though you think you know a trick, it doesn't have to look anything like anything that anyone has ever done before. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So that's that's an, in a nutshell, <laughs> my my, uh, my obsession with the cups and balls. And I, I you know, I, the only the only thing I'm sad about is that after my second divorce and after my uh, my 
a second magic shop in Seattle closed that I have not been able to keep up with uh, purchases. Yeah. Uh, for instance, I don't own any of the Brett Sherwood cups yet. And those, those are you know, it's like I. There was a time in my life that I think I could have afforded those, but now now that uh, things are different, uh, no, I I will uh, I would buy I would buy a set of those if they were if they were if I could find a deal on them, but I yeah. don't think you'll ever find a deal on those. Those are always going to go at retail or better. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know the Brett Sherwood Cups, you should visit his site brettsherwood.com, and he has the most exquisite. He has the Rolex. Or maybe maybe watch collectors wouldn't even like that. I don't. Well, he is the Patek Philippe. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> he is the Breitling. <laughs> yeah. But he's they, got the he's IWC got, of. He's of got cups. the uh, some engraved silver and gold plated cups. That the engraved cups are just. They're they're masterpieces. Yeah, they really are. And you know what's funny is some people don't even use them. Yeah. And that's a real shame because I have handled those. I would beat cups. the fuck out of those cups. You really could. You could. You, they I are. Love they to. are just built to be used, mm-hmm. and it's a shame that uh, we just had our uh, fourth annual epic cups and balls session, which yeah. is a twelve-hour session, and there was a. Uh, a fellow that came to the, our first one. Uh, I don't really know this fellow that well, but his name is Jerry Foster, and he he described himself as slightly OCD. And uh, he uh, we had this portion in this twelve hour session called show and tell, where people could just bring their stuff. And we had two set major sessions. One was people would do the routines, and we would critique the routines. And there was another giant section called show and tell. And he brought out some beautiful uh, collector sets of cups. And he put on a white pair of gloves <laughs> before he would even handle his pressure wood cups. Yeah, and uh, but those are, yeah. No, sh- this is. There's never been a better time in history to buy a set of cups at whatever price range you want. Yeah, my my first set of cups is still my favorite set of cups, and I love my Gazoka. I mean, I I love them. I performed you know hundreds and thousands of shows with them, but my first set was a cheap thin brass set that is just beautiful now it's just nice patinaed gorgeously and they're little you know it's not beat up like your cups are but you know it's got some wear on it it's got some character exactly that's what i love is what do you like better when you see a set you know i've always wondered do beat up cups look better or a nice pristine set cup i think uh, i am in love with both of them and i think it depends on what your setting is going to be if you're going to do the close-up room at the castle probably you should have a cleaner nicer looking set of cups because you're going to be in a suit but you wouldn't use a clean nice set of cups on the street you know, yeah. it's the context of it and the the character. I just sort of find that, that something with character is going to be better than something that looks like you bought it from a magic shop. I agree, and that's where that's where I think you can take those and do those in the close up room. Those beat up Cellini cups in the close up room, but you couldn't take the Sherwood cups on the street. I would take a Sherwood set. I would. I'm not <laughs> saying I wouldn't. I definitely would. But I'm saying like just as far as is. You know, creating the right the cups that I use regularly. Character. These, these are the ones that uh, when I go out and do shows and when I work the streets, these are the ones. That, and this is a chrome plated set of Phoenix cups. Make sure that the balls are in there. There you go. So these don't look, and like I said before when we were talking about that, you could never make those look like that Cellini beat up set. This is about as beat up as you can make a Phoenix set look. Yeah. These are nice and shiny. Yeah, so I feel good in any in any venue working those, whether it be 
you know, a high pay, a high paying corporate gig or a uh, or a, an old folks home. That's the set of cups I'm taking. Yeah, yeah, these are great. I like these a lot. I like how they can be dressed up or down. Yeah. These are great. Would you like another another beverage? Uh, I am okay, thank you. Um, I don't really have much more written over here. Do you feel satisfied? We've done about two and a half hours. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Get the fuck out. Yeah. All right. Well, let, let me. Uh, let's. I would just like to reiterate. Yeah. Please. One thing, for all of these yous out there listening, don't be insufferable. <laughs> and pass the deck. Yeah. If you're with your buddies, pass the deck. Let them have some fun too. Don't hold court. Share the spotlight. Be a good person. Love you all. Great. Thank you so much, Tom. Peace out, brother. Ha, ha, ha.